Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hey Simon. Hey Simon. Today we are heading to Los Angeles for what will be our final episode, for now at least, of our America on Film series. We might return to the series next year with other cities or regions, but we wanted to finish this initial run of episodes with Los Angeles on Film. As usual, these episodes will start with Vaughn giving us a brief history of the city, and then we'll get into the movie selections. Since there are so many to choose from, we've decided to go back to the original format of the show, which we did for New York, where we picked three films each. So this time, we'll each get three picks for Los Angeles. And stay tuned to the end of the episode for our thoughts on the series in general, and our kind of uh, review of the series. But first, let's start with a quick chat on the term Los Angeles on film and what it means to you. Vaughn, do you want to kick us off? Um, Sure. So... I mean, my obvious answer is going to be Hollywood, right? <laughs> the, oh, films that are depicting Hollywood um, yeah. and by extension, kind of film noir. Uh, a lot of films out of LA follow the kind of generic staples of film noir. They're crime dramas with like sex and intrigue and drugs and corruption. And they're... They're pretty timeless Mm. I would say I think they really capture that um that kind of public image that people have of LA that's like glitz and glamour and like murder kind of thing so I that's that's what I picture with LA on film um yeah I I guess I guess I'm sorry (laughs) <laughs> something similar yeah. i think some combination of celebrity wealth and crime mm-hmm. and generally these intersect in, in one way or another i get i also think of just los angeles as being more of a sprawl and having less sort of centralized iconography in the way new york has and yeah. um when i think of some of the shots in, in films when they're depicting maybe the sort of business center of LA it's usually from afar and they're normally sort of shooting looking out towards some taller buildings you know the skyscrapers they're in the center but I don't really feel like I have the same connection to the sort of downtown you know city center of LA uh, on like the high-rise building type thing as, as I would in New York or even other um, cities that we've covered such as Chicago like I, I don't feel like I'm you know I don't feel there's an equivalent of like a, a Wall Street or you know other streets of, of that magnitude. I, I generally think of the sprawl of Los Angeles. I think of you know the hills, the LA, the Hollywood sign, and then I think of the, mm-hmm. the films themselves. And as you say, so, so much of that touches on film noir, and th- there's lots of, of of films that we will, um, what we could have done that kind of relate to, to that. And um, as just kind of a hint, my my three films are kind of crime um crime dramas uh police sort of dramas as well uh, mixed in as well um but i specifically went for i guess slightly more traditional uh views of, of that type of story rather than a postmodern uh telling of it so something like a, a pop fiction or kiss kiss bang bang which is as i say more of a, a postmodern retelling of those um i went for for something a little uh, i went my, my my three picks are maybe a little bit more traditional in that sense um although they do cover 
um, different parts of the, the, the sort of half century of, of LA on film. Um, Toby, do you have any, any thoughts on the, on the term Los Angeles on film? I think, yeah, I, in line with what you said, like a lot of people who live in, in LA have the problem of trying to get to places on the motorway, yeah. right? So yeah. it is this idea that it's so sprawling and that's, you know, authenticating particular streets is, is more difficult. It's, it's more ubiquitous in, in some ways. And I think also it's, it's, it's more sort of private anatomized in a way. I, I really think of um, Los Angeles and Los Angeles on film is like Los Angeles is a place that's different from the other cities that we covered because I think you go to New York probably to like become a member of like the high bourgeois or something like that, you know, like things like girls, friends, um, sort of other, other TV shows, content, media. Mm. Um, but you go to LA to do absolutely anything and essentially to become a God almost, I think, mm. I think Los Angeles is a place um, you know, it's the end of the frontier, as uh, many people have said, and it's it, it's really a place of mystery, of intrigue, of, of 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 ideas of murder and crime and film noir and celebrity and status and wealth. But it's also a place I think that's quite transient. I think a lot of the people who go there aren't from there. It's a lot of mm-hmm. people come from different parts of the country mm-hmm. to make something of themselves but 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 it but i think it also like i think a lot of like the the ideas of social status and uh, although they are still the same and 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 hollywood hides a lot of that i think people go there to do things that 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 aren't possible anywhere else and it it's it's and it's a, it's a city that many people fail in irrespective of their social status, irrespective of where they come from. And, and in many ways it, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's, it's the final frontier and uh, almost like the ultimate expression of self and ambition can be found in, in, in Los Angeles. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, Shall we? Shall we let Vaughn do her history thing that she so kindly does at the, at the start of each episode? So, uh, Vaughn, once again, thank you for pulling this together. And uh, after you so kindly do this, we'll move on to the films. Okay, awesome. Um, so this is going to be a little bit long today, and I apologize for that. But as Simon and Toby both said, LA is sprawling. So let's get into it. So LA is a fairly large city uh, by population with the current population of nearly 4 million people, which is about half the population of New York. But New York has a square mileage of 302, while LA has a square mileage of 502. Um, So the actual geographical city is spacious to say the least. Um, The reason it is so spacious is because in 1913, the LA aqueducts were completed to provide water for the citizens within city limits. And they had about four times the amount of water that they needed. So they put a ban on selling water from the aqueducts outside of the city. 
which incentivized other local communities and cities to be annexed within LA. Um, the city expanded the city limits to include places such as Glendale, Burbank, San Fernando uh, Valley, and Beverly Hills, Venice, etc. In 1910, Hollywood and East Hollywood merged with Los Angeles as part of this expansion, um, bringing with it the soon bustling motion picture industry. The motion picture industry actually began in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, with around 30 film companies setting up shop there. And then following one studio's lead, which was Cal uh, Callum Studios, who were the first to leave the East Coast for the West in 1908, and they were also the first to set up in the LA area in 1911. Um, the first person to make a film in Hollywood was D.W. Griffith. And the first studio in Hollywood, like properly in Hollywood, was Nestor Studios, followed by the major ones that most people will be way more familiar with, being Paramount, Warner Brothers, RKO, and Columbia. That was mostly for me. So back to LA proper. LA was renowned for a few things in the early 20th century, being Hollywood, um, political and police corruption, and transit. So jumping into political and police corruption, it was rampant in the early 20th century uh, through the 1950s and arguably still is to today, which we will get way more into in a little bit. Um, but in the 1920s, the mayor, councilmen, and attorneys regularly took contributions from bootleggers, gamblers, and organized crime syndicates. And the mayor's brother was selling jobs in the LAPD, and the top aide to the mayor was involved in a protection racket. It became so brazen that in 1933, the mayor, Frank Shaw, was openly paying city employees to give contracts to cronies of the, of the crime syndicates. And the vice squad of the LAPD functioned as the enforcers and collectors of the city's organized crime rings. Uh, city officials up to the mayor took payoffs fairly openly throughout the depression. This all escalated when a group of citizens who were sick of the corruption sought to root out all of this, um, all this corruption within the police department and the police through their intelligence squad um, blew up one of their cars, nearly killing the concerned citizen in question. The public was outraged by this rightfully and voted the mayor out of office in one of the first big city recalls in the US. 24 police officers were forced to resign, including the chief and the head of the intelligence squad was convicted and sentenced to two years to life for the explosion. Fletcher Brown, who was a judge from the Superior Court and a member of this concerned citizens group was elected mayor in 1938 and undertook a massive reform movement to fix this rampant corruption. In 1950, Brown appointed William H. Parker as chief of police who pushed for the police department to be independent from the rest of the government and work to reform the LAPD as its own unit, separate from, as separate as it could be from the rest of the politics. 
Um, going backwards a little bit to shift gears. In 1937, LA purchased Mines Field as a municipal airfield that later became uh, Los Angeles Airport in 1941 and Los Angeles International Airport or LAX in 1949. Since then, the city has not stopped its expansion efforts, um, constantly amassing more land and by necessity, more transit. During World War II, LA decided on a web of freeways as the best option to cut down on transportation issues in the region. As of today, there are approximately 37 freeways in the greater Los Angeles region. Also during the war, LA grew as a production center for aircrafts, ships, war supplies, and ammunition. Northrop and Lockheed, um, still the top two military contractors today, were headquartered in LA throughout the war, along with three other aircraft manufacturers making strategic bombers and uh, fighter aircrafts. As a result of this sudden rampaging industry, LA grew dramatically in the early 40s with a population larger than 37 states by 1943. That statistic another way, um, one in every 40 Americans lived in LA in 1943, just in Los Angeles. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, authorizing military commanders to exclude, quote, any or all persons, end quote, from certain areas of the country in the name of national defense. This led to military zones that became internment camps for Japanese Americans, including 80,000 um, Japanese American citizens from the Los Angeles area alone. Um, we've talked about the Great Migration with other cities in this series, but Los Angeles received around 200,000 African-Americans in the second wave of the Great Migration, uh, attracting people for the defense contractor positions during the war. Ironically, FDR had another executive order, EO 8802, which prohibited discrimination in wartime defense industries. Black citizens moving to LA were not directly subject to the Jim Crow laws of the South, but were faced with racial discrimination, especially including systemic issues within the local government with housing segregation, um, redlining due to overcrowding, lower property values and restrictions on advancement opportunities within their industries. In June 1943, American servicemen and local white people attacked young Mexican-Americans in what became known as the Zoot Suit Riots. Um, LAPD stood by while the racial attacks happened and ultimately arrested hundreds of Hispanic residents instead of those attacking them. Moving into the post-war, um, land developers expanded LA even more Real estate replaced oil, agriculture, and most of the defense markets as the main industry. In 1955, Walt Disney opened the world's first theme park, being Disneyland, in Anaheim. And nine years later, um, in 64, 
Universal Studios opened its first theme park with the studio tours of Universal City. The quote unquote theme park wars between Disney and Universal are still happening today, which we won't focus on now, but we could do something with that in the future. Um, as the population boomed, industries boomed alongside with LA becoming the second largest car manufacturer in the US and second in the clothing industry. Hollywood and television dominated the world from LA. Um, LA also took advantage of the GI Bill and Federal Housing Administration in the 1950s and led the way in suburbanization to the point that the San Fernando Valley is sometimes called, quote, America's suburb. As a city hell-bent on freeways and built solely around the automobile since the early 1900s, LA is also notable for air pollution and smog, with schools even being closed in the 1970s for smog days uh, when it was too unhealthy to leave home. Coming back around to police corruption, moving into the 1960s, corruption became blatant police brutality um, in more ways than it had been before. The US kind of famed and lauded the LAPD as one of the most quote, efficient departments in the world. But this fame was due to the increasingly common charges of police brutality against black and Mexican citizens of Los Angeles. In August 1965, the Watts riots in the Watts area of LA raged for six days in response to police brutality. 14,000 members of the California Army National Guard were called in and 34 people were murdered. Throughout the 70s and 80s, LA saw an increase in street gangs while crack cocaine use also rose in the area throughout the 1980s. By the 1990s, the city began to gentrify some areas, raising the housing prices and pushing the lowest income residents out of the city. In addition, there were some attempts at revitalization and urban development that are still happening today. But really the thing that most influenced the start of the decrease in gangs, um, apart from that gentrification, was the heavily, heavily increased police presence throughout the 90s in many parts of the city leading to racial profiling, increased arrests, and unjust incarcerations, as well as even more police brutality. On March 3rd, 1991, one of the most famous instances um, of modern police brutality occurred when LAPD were caught on film beating Rodney King while in police custody. King was unarmed. The footage was sent to a local news station and soon covered internationally as public fury rose around the world. LAPD initially charged King with felony evading of arrest, but dropped the charges when the chief of police acknowledged that the officers used excessive force, striking King, quote, with batons between 53 and 56 times, end quote. Three of the four officers tried for excessive, for use of excessive force were acquitted and the jury failed to reach a verdict on the fourth. Within hours of the acquittals, the 1992 Los Angeles riots started. 
Um, these riots lasted another six days with 63 people killed and 2,383 injured. The California Army National Guard, the US Army and the Marine Corps all provided reinforcements to end the riots. In the 21st century, a lot of the problems discussed above are still affecting LA today. Um, wildfires continue to worsen every year uh, throughout Southern California and encroaching even further on LA itself. The efforts to improve affordable housing have continued through as recently as a deal struck in 2019 for I think about $44 million. Um, the NFL even moved two teams back to LA in two, uh, 2016 and 2017. However, since the 1980s, there has been an ever increasing wealth gap between the residents of LA and it is one of the most socioeconomically divided cities in the US. Um, overall, LA is still home to Hollywood, Rodeo Drive, massive industries still in clothing and film and all sorts of things. Um, an ever sprawling city limit, as we've said, LAX, wealth inequality, a centuries plus history of police corruption and brutality against several races, and one of the most unique and difficult to capture histories I've had to write so far. Um, do you guys have anything to add? Um, not anything specifically that you've not mentioned. Um, the, the only thing I was going to add, well, first of all, thank you for that, Vaughn. Um, I was going to ask you just just your thoughts in, in general on doing LA history. Um, how much did you learn researching this? Did you kind of know the broad strokes already? Um, and how, how did you find that as a task for today's episode? Um, that's a good question. I... LA um, that I knew before writing this history mm -hmm. um, because all of that is kind of Hollywood centric and we've covered that on like the the Reagan and Hollywood mm -hmm. episode and um, there are some other things that we might do in the future so I tried to really tailor it to the film specifically so I was aware of a lot of the police corruption I was aware mm -hmm. of the Rodney King and LA riots um, but yeah, I, I learned a fair bit and it was, I learned a lot more than I included here actually um, because I really tried to keep this condensed. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Um, it's been a, a great part for me. I think um, the fact that we have a historian who can add some context prior to us talking about the films. And I think that's one of the unique things about having you on the show is that your uh, ability to, to provide this kind of history prior to us talking about the films, I think is a real great addition. So thank you again. Um, oh, thanks, Simon. I know very occasionally I'm nice to people, mm -hmm. but it happens so rarely that people just write it <laughs> off as an absurd, absurd occurrence. Um, right, shall we go into the films then? Um, before we do, we should mention that there are so many films to choose from for LA on mm -hmm. film we could have done 50 episodes, uh, fifty uh, films and not covered them all, to be honest. Um, some famous ones, including Pulp Fiction and Terminator 2, who are two very famous ones that you might have heard of. Um, they didn't make it in. And in fact, uh, there isn't a Tarantino film in here, um, which is maybe surprising considering some of his most famous films have been, have been set in LA. 
although we may be doing a California series um, on various things in the future, and it's possible that we'll, we'll maybe cover a Tarantino film then. And Toby and myself also did do an episode on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when it came out, from what I recall. Um, so we have covered Tarantino a little bit um, in the past. Um, so without further ado, shall we go into the first film, which is uh, a pick by Toby, I believe, which is um, one of the sort of classic films of the second half of the 20th century. It's Chinatown, a 1974 neo-noir mystery film directed by Robert uh, Roman Polanski from a sc- screenplay by Robert Town, starring Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. The film was inspired by the California Water Wars, um, a series of disputes over Southern California water at the beginning of the 20th century, and it tells the story of a private detective hired to expose an adulterer in 1930s Los Angeles who finds himself, ca- finds himself caught up in a web of deceit, corruption, and murder. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, uh, winning one, and is um, generally considered, as I said, one of the, the greatest films of all time. Toby, can you um, tell us why you pick this film for Los Angeles on film, and um, doing so with the <laughs> the caveat that we've only got roughly 10 minutes to speak about each one? <laughs> well, I think the reason I picked uh, this movie is because it's an essential mm-hmm. movie in the over of uh, films about Los Angeles, it, and, and there's there's two things that it has uh, going for it, and even within that, there's multiple things. I mean, it's it's a depiction of Los Angeles in a time where the the, the very existence of Los Angeles was actually still you know still under dispute in terms of its um, its access to water. And it squashes actually a number of uh, different uh, historical references together to to create this myth, which is it really is the you know a myth of uh, the sort of the raping of the of the of the valley and the the transference of, of water away from uh, Los Angeles. And I think um, another th- great thing about this movie, another reason why the the movie's uh, essential is that it comes out of that sort of 1970s cultural moment um, where the studio system changed and allowed um, a number of filmmakers, uh, Roman Polanski himself explicitly uh, European to try to form and create different kinds of stories with with endings that weren't so, you know, they weren't so positive. Um, they weren't so good for the the leading characters. They had a sort of European spin on, on them. I would say that um, my favorite things about this movie, I think, are the fact that Jake uh, Giddis, who uh, who's the main uh, character, he, he goes through a number of different uh, interactions with um, this this crime, and the crime is is actually you don't find out the 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 truth about the crime until the end of, end of the movie, and he's faced with a lot of different uh, interactions with people who don't want to tell him they don't want to tell him the truth. Um, he he first his his actual first interaction with. Um, with the the the, the 
with um Hollis Mulray's uh wife uh is actually not with with her at all it's with someone who's pretending to be her and has been set up to pretend to be her then he finds out um that she, she's someone else um the the original thing that he's investigating is he's investigating a, a potential love affair between uh Hollis Mulray and a young lady but he finds out that that isn't the case and and what opens up is that there's is is this actual scheme to siphon off water from the public uh the public good which Hollis Mulray wanted towards individual uh speculators led by Noah Cross uh who but but who is the major villain of the of the of the movie and i think that the, i think i think one thing I, I i want to leave about this movie is that it really is one of the great myths in america or in american life this this idea that the that's california and the uh los angeles is this place where people can go and uh, discover themselves or discover their dreams. What uh, Chinatown does is it, is it makes the Giddish character actually find out that the, the, the things that he wants to achieve, um, you know, in the movie, just to, just to find out this, the, the mystery behind the story, he, he, the whole world seems to be pushing against him. He meets a, a boy in the dam who doesn't really tell him that much. He he goes off to the the cross's house, and uh, he he can't find any information. And 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 I think that the I think what strikes out about this movie is that this is this myth of Chinatown. Uh, Geddes used to work in Chinatown, and um, when he was a detective in Chinatown, uh, and when he was rising through the ranks. He often found that the the Chinese, uh, who and in many ways are literally the lower class in in, in California and in, in this period, in depicted in this period, they would never say anything. They would never tell him anything, and um, no one no one gave him any information, and nothing was solved. And again, when he when he, even though he's not necessarily dealing with that community now, he's finding out, he's feeling and finding out the same thing. And towards the end of the movie. Um, the 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 police are confused. Uh, Jake, Jake is, is 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 constantly confused about um, what what's happening. And as the movie sort of opens up at the end of the movie, you find out that there's two uh, things that, that they're being hidden. One thing that's being hidden is this idea of the siphoning off of the of the water by the Noah Cross character. And the other thing is being hidden is that actually. Um, Mulray's wife, who's the daughter of Noah Cross, was raped by um, the by by Noah Cross when she was young when she was younger, and her daughter is actually the or uh, well, Noah Cross's daughter is actually also her daughter, and um, but but so he and Noah Cross is actually hiding two things. He's hiding the fact that the the what he's doing with the dam and he's also hiding this 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 tragic um relationship that he had with his daughter which has led to this this you know with his granddaughter who's also his daughter 
And so the, 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 the great tragedy of this movie is two things. And, and I think that's probably what is so great about this movie. It's that, it's that, that, that the movie does not offer uh, the, its main character a way to solve the problems that the movie presents. Um, the metaphor of Chinatown where no one, no one knows, everyone knows something, but no one is willing to give him that information. It stays, and in, and in the end, uh, one of his um, people that he works with tells him, you know, you, I mean, it's, it's Chinatown. You, you, there's nothing you could do. So there's this idea that in this world is, is really nothing he can do about the, the issues that are presented to him. And, and, and it really becomes, I think, a world of closed doors, a, a, a maze almost. California becomes this maze where the, the morality in traditional so- stories is, is completely siphoned off and there is no way to solve the problems that are presented. And I think uh, just to leave, um, because I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive about time, just to leave you, this movie is kind of like the, the Great Gatsby and, um, and, and I think, but the diff- difference between this and The Great Gatsby is the, the Gatsby has this, the, the light, you know, the, the green light, the green light, light, yeah. the green light. And the green light is this, it's a aspirational thing. It's, it's the, you know, that there, there are this moment that you can capture and it's, it's the moment that everyone is lo- really looking for, you know, but it's just a moment. And that's the nature of, you know, that's the nature of the human mind. And, um, and in Moby Dick, you know, you have all the same, same thing, you know, the aspiration of catching the whale, but in Chinatown, the aspiration of, of solving something, the aspiration of Los Angeles itself is, is hidden and can't, can't be found. There's a fatalism to this movie, a fatalism to, to his whole process of this investigation. And I think this is why uh, Chinatown remains one of the great movies um, and is also why its, its depiction of, of Los Angeles is, is so different and so essential because it's, it's saying really that you, you, know, you can go to Los Angeles and you know you want to find out the truth. You want to find yourself. You want to, you know, this is the end of the frontier. But 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 Jake is is trying to reach out for the truth. He's trying to reach out for um, justice and morality, and he can't find it. And and I think the the movie leaves you leaves you with with that. And uh, obviously, it, it emerges out of the the post Watergate, um, post Vietnam world as well. And that it's, and that's married to the to the to the film noir of the nineteen thirties, which which again was was very much like that. So yeah, I think that's why uh, Chinatown, is, why I picked Chinatown and why Chinatown may, remains so essential. That's interesting. I never really thought about the ties between uh, it being made in a time where America didn't really have answers and being made about you know the actual telling of the story is about a time where answers are kind of hard to come by. But that's a that's an interesting point to be. Um, Vaughn, just very quickly, did you, uh, um, I think you saw this film in uh, in the run up to this episode? Um, is this the first time seeing the film for you? Um, yes, it was my first time seeing it, and I appreciate it a lot more after hearing Toby talk about it, because <laughs> <laughs> I I was quite disengaged from this movie, honestly. Interesting. I kept kind of just staring at young Jack Nicholson and being like. I don't think I've ever seen him young and he looks <laughs> vaguely like Richard Nixon. 
a couple people in a couple films that we're going to talk about look like young Richard Richard Nixon to me. So I'm going to say that again later. Do you know what I think it is? It's that this movie spends a lot of time trying not not, not to give you answers. Yeah. And I think relies very much on its ending because mm-hmm. there is a lot of frustration in this movie. And if, if, it, if you aren't engaged with it um, on some level, then it, it, it is, it's, I think it's easy to get distracted. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's a very real thing. Um, even for fans of this movie, it's, it's, I mm. mean, it's just, it's just a fact of watching this movie. I think I, I didn't that's watch the, Oh, sorry, only go one. I was going to say that's definitely like my experience with it because I was disengaged until like the mic drop when mm-hmm. she reveals that her daughter is also her sister um, and that she was assaulted. That that like snapped me in and I was like, wait, what's happening? Like, what is this? <laughs> and the rest of the ending of the film, I was like, oh, that was really good. Yeah, but the the lead up to it, it is a long film, so I was yeah. like in and out with the story, I think. But sorry, Simon, go ahead. Oh no, sorry. All I was going to say was, um, I didn't watch the film leading up to this. I kind of ran out of time, um, but I had seen the film before, and I I kind of I was sort of between your both your points, I guess. There, there was there was definitely something about it which I found intriguing and in the world there. But mm-hmm. I think at first when I had seen it before, there was also a bit of a brick wall as, as we were saying um as, as toby was describing i think what i would love to do with this film in particular is actually see it on the big screen and actually see it in a cinema and mm. actually kind of be baited in it and see whether or not i'd have a different kind of experience rather than you know sitting at home watching on a tv and I, I wonder how that experience would be different if i had to give kind of my all to it and i kind of had to be completely washed in in the visuals and and the characters more than than I am in a, uh, I can be in watching on at home on a television. So um, I don't know. Maybe maybe one day we'll we'll get that. But I'm I'm not sure how many screens of Chinatown they're doing in Scotland currently. So um, <laughs> I might not get my wish. Um, our our next film then is uh, a pick by Vaughn and is another classic, and it's Sunset Boulevard, which is a 1950 black comedy film noir uh, directed and co-written by Billy Wilder. And starring uh, William uh, Holden and uh, Gloria Swanson, and tells the story of a struggling screenwriter who develops a uh, dangerous relationship with a faded mm. film star who's determined to make a triumphant return. It won three Academy Awards and is considered a Hollywood classic. Vaughn, can you tell us why you picked this film in relation to Los Angeles on film? Because it's fucking great. It is a great <laughs> film. Like, it's just. As you said, it is a classic. It is one of the first things I think of with LA Mm -hmm. is like Sunset Boulevard, whether the place or the film or the stage production, like it's a a massive um, story that is reproduced constantly. Um, Not necessarily on film, but I've seen it on stage several times actually. Um, So yeah, it's like, classic Hollywood icon is this like shut away in her mansion on Sunset Boulevard and it opens with a murder and then like a like a 50s record scratch freeze frame of like (laughs) how did we get here kind of thing um and you go back six months and um the main character tells you how he he got into this relationship with Norma Desmond the 
the old Hollywood star. Um, as Simon said, she she keeps him. Well, I don't know if you said that, but she she keeps him in her mansion. He's like running from debt collectors because he's so far behind on bills and everything. He can't sell any of his screenplays. So he's running from debt collectors. He doesn't want them to take his car and he hides it in this, what looks like an abandoned mansion's garage. Um, and it turns out that Norma Desmond lives there and she's been a shutaway for years and she's all mysterious and like a smoke show, like super hot for what they give to her character. They're like, oh, she's so old and decrepit and gross. She's 50 and wicked hot. Um, she brings the writer into her home and pays off all of his debts and like moves him into her mansion and then buys him all of these fancy clothes and things. And it's hinted very strongly that they have sex with each other. Um, like lucky him, but <laughs> it is it is quite a volatile relationship because he isn't willing to relent into it, um, which totally fair, that's fair. Uh, and she is volatile and abusive and manipulative. Um, she attempts suicide to keep him there uh, or to, to draw his attention back to her. She tries to sabotage his relationship with um, another woman whom he had pried away from her fiance. Like there's no healthy relationship in this film, uh, which also makes it great because there's just so much toxicity. And that's what I think of when I think of LA. I think of toxic relationships, um, except for one, which we'll talk about. Um, yeah, uh, so, another, yeah, another classic choice. Um, mm -hmm. It's... I, I guess with, with the main character, um, it's I suppose reflective of Hollywood. This idea of once, <laughs> once the 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 female actress hits a certain age, she she is suddenly sort of not just forgotten about, but if she is considered at all, it's this sort of terrifying afterthought who um, might destroy us all with her um, her actions that she will take. Um, I it, sorry, only go on. Can I jump in real quick? Yeah. I forgot because I got so sidetracked with how she's this super babe, like smoke show sugar mama. I forgot the actual point of why I chose it for LA. Um, sure. It is a classic, but it is like a new uh, film noir. And it's also a fascinating look at the changes from silent films to mm -hmm. um, like talkies because she was a silent film star. And that's why she fell out of fashion because she has so much disdain for um talking films she says at one point um that hollywood had the ear of the whole world but they wanted the eye as well yeah and that's a really fascinating kind of line um for thinking about the history of hollywood and how things changed so rapidly with uh technological advancements within Hollywood and then also within cinemas around the country that made it possible to actually ship films out. So as a look at just Hollywood itself, it's absolutely fascinating. There are also so many perfect quotes from this where she says, I'm actually rich, not like this new age Hollywood trash. Fantastic line. Um, anyway, sorry, Simon, go ahead. No, I, I, sorry, I was just gonna say, it, it does seem to, I think Sunset Boulevard 
has it was both re- reflective of what Hollywood is and or was and still is in in regards to um the roles that are available for for older actresses obviously she she comes from from the silent era um but it's also quite um i think it, it's had a lasting impression with how we or how hollywood continues to make movies you think of something like the artist which tells a similar ish story um around a silent film star and um sort of younger star coming up and um coming through during the talkies um I, yeah, it's it's a uh, if we're if we're going to talk about you know film noir and 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 Hollywood and especially classic Hollywood, I, I guess this is as uh, good a starting place as any. Uh, Toby, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on Sunset Boulevard. No, I think uh, I think it's a great film. Like Vaughn, I'm 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 completely shocked by this <laughs> idea that this is an old and <laughs> decrepit uh, uh-huh. <laughs> woman. I mean, I I I just I watched this movie again and and i was just like what is he talking about yes. he's, he's talking like he's being tortured by this person the girl that he's with at the party is like two degrees less attractive than this, this, <laughs> this, this, this goddess uh, uh who's living in a mansion who prepares <laughs> everything for him I, what's he doing it, and let's main out so this tragedy. Oh my god, the idea that, that it's suggested with the way having sex. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> it it doesn't make any sense. But again, yeah, like for me, it is this it, I think it goes back to uh what I said when talking about trying to about like Gatsby. It's like she had a moment and and that moment was structured around silent film. And yeah, you know, just like the artist and uh, singing in the rain as well. Mm-hmm. This um, this this change and and a number of uh, actors were were left uh, in the silent silent era. But um, I think for her, she had this moment, and um, like Cecil B. DeMille was in the movie. Um, but yeah, she had this moment, and the, the and when she goes back to the studio. There's older people who know who she is and she really loves that they know who she is. And uh, but it shows like especially for women, but also for for stars of any kind, they're all going to have their moment, the moment where they are the most, you know, most validated, the moments of great fame and um, not just great wealth, but great fame in the world. Because she remains very wealthy. You know, she's she's mm-hmm. wealthy enough to have uh, her manservant wealthy enough to keep this uh, young aspiring writer in, you know, and great wealth and and prosperity, which she seems to disdain. But but she doesn't have what she had before. And I think the final scene of this movie, like for me, it, it, it really speaks to what people who want fame really want. You know, the fact that she's killed this guy doesn't matter to her she, she is deranged you know she she isn't doing something that's normal but it's it's much more metaphorical right what she wants from the world is to be seen seen in the way that she was previously mm-hmm. and the world has forgotten about her but the fact that now she's on the news reels she again she's able to gain that sense of validation from the world that she ha- held before and it's and, and, it, and again it's like 
when does it end? How would you get it? And and um, how how would you keep it? You know, the stardom that the people go to to Los Angeles for um, depicted here in in an extreme case. You know, it, it is one of the central themes of 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 LA. But and and I guess the the thing with Sunset Boulevard is, is Sunset Boulevard is is more of a is a is a negative allegory as opposed to singing rain singing rain rain in the in the nineteen fifties in a time to some extent where Hollywood was being critiqued for you know this wealth and its excess um and going and they you know they go back to 1930s with film noir here it is a negative allegory but it is a timeless piece about uh wealth and and status and fame i think there's the themes are also in once upon a time in hollywood Mm -hmm. even a guy like um like yeah character is you know even though he hasn't had a big career he feels like it has been and yeah. he's still rich. He's still wealthy, still attractive, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have what he had before and he needs that. And, and that, that feeling is eternal. And there's an eternal aspect of, of going to Los Angeles and becoming this person. Even if you have the, the, the skeleton of a prosperous life, what that isn't, ultimately what you want what you seek uh fame for and i think it's, it's a really great um deconstruction of of, of fame in hollywood uh, and um and yeah yeah i think it's a great movie great um right we shall probably move on to the third pick which is mine and that's la confidential which is a 1997 neo-noir crime film directed and co-written by curtis hansen and starring Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, James Cromwell, Kim Basinger, and Danny Tovito, and tells the story of police corruption and Hollywood journalism in 1950s Los Angeles. It won two Academy Awards, and in 2008, it finished number one in the list of films shot in the um, uh, sort of Los Angeles area, or about Los Angeles culture, in a poll conducted by the LA Times. So the reason I pick this film, probably two or three reasons. One is that it, again, plays into this uh, take on classic Hollywood era that is built around um, a neo-noir crime story and um, an early early look at uh, gotcha journalism. It's also um, a good city film in the sense that you do actually kind of get to see different parts of the city and and get to to feel the different neighborhoods from the the poor black uh, neighborhoods where the sort of intimidating, uh, the police are intimidating uh, young men to to the the police stations and the kind of more built up city center. And then I I, I guess it's it's going to act as an interesting counterpoint for the the two films I've picked later on. And for me, um, I saw this film, I came out in 97, so I'm trying to think I would have been maybe somewhere between 10 and 14, whenever it came on television in the UK, um, I would have watched it and I would, I, I, I don't remember specifically what age I was, but I do remember watching, I remember being really intrigued by the story, by these great actors, and by the fact that um, it was, you know, set during this this golden time of, of Hollywood in the 1950s and how it, it deconstructs um, both the um, LA <laughs> Police Department, which we'll, we'll touch on, on a bit more in, the, in this film and in other films as well, and also the kind of scene within Hollywood and the 
the sort of dirt and grime of of Hollywood underneath the surface of the kind of glitz and gram, uh, glamour. Um, so yeah, I I think it's a it's still a film I really enjoy watching, and it's a, a classic depiction of 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 a Hollywood um, during a transition time in LA um, as the, the police department are trying to basically have a, a new image and move away from I think they say a fat police officer stealing apples kind of thing, and um, they're trying to move away from that to to an LA that's or a police LA the police department which is more representative of the city in which the city can be proud of, and obviously we see through the the story that's depicted in the film that that's very much not the case with the the various uh, misdeeds that go on and i, th- I think the the journalism side played by the dan devito character who's uh, working with the police to to you know get get um stars arrested and to dig up dirt and to, to use people essentially in order to to sell their um glossy magazines um is a, a pretty telling part of the the, the side of Hollywood which continues today and continue, continue throughout the 20th century where lurid details of uh, famous people um, doing various things is just a part uh, part and parcel of, of being a celebrity and um, celebrity culture I think I think for actors you know they, they, they often go on, on TV shows and talk about you know how great the work is and you know how they enjoy working with this actor or working with that director or, or speaking this this writer's words and they almost feel that there's a um sort of they have to pay the price by then being a celebrity but at the same time they, they need the celebrity in order in order to get the fame that and the, the the fortune that comes with it so um yeah i think it's a it's a really interesting film and i think it's one that is pretty cynical about the police department of that time um, and the fact this is only a few years, it was made in 97, so only a few years after the the, the Rodney King beating, um, probably quite telling that, um, yeah, it doesn't exactly have a, a shining, uh, shining um, viewpoint of the LA Police Department. Um, I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on this film. Vaughn, do you want to, have you got anything to add? Um, sure. I mean, I think you summed it up really nicely. It's definitely a very damning look at the police department. Um, I was really happy Danny DeVito was in it. <laughs> <laughs> like when it started and I heard his voice, I was immediately more into this film, yeah. um, just from the first line. It, it's a really interesting crime film. Um, and the the like mystery of the crimes that are happening is so well done mm-hmm. i think so so just from like a contents perspective it's a great film to watch yes. um very enjoyable all the way throughout lots of talk about why people got into being police which was interesting mm. um in the backgrounds there are lots of very interesting pro-police um posters and billboards trying to recruit new people to the police department that really juxtapose what you are seeing in the police department uh which is very well done um there's an interesting thing that isn't necessarily about la or hollywood but um this film is from 1997 and i told simon yesterday that i knew it was the the captain from the beginning and I'm going to ruin a lot of films for you guys because (laughs) 
films from the mid 90s, well, from the 90s um, and early 2000s will almost always have a villain, Hollywood films will almost always have a villain with an Irish, Scottish or British accent because the Cold War had just ended and we, we couldn't, Americans could not make films with the villain being Russian as they had been doing for 30 years before uh, as just kind of like the stock image mm -hmm. bad guy was either a Nazi or a Russian throughout all of the Cold War. So we had to figure out who could be our villains in this like strange diplomatic time. And we landed on the Irish, Scottish and British. Um, and that blew up as we talked about on the 4th of July episode, actually, I think I mentioned it with uh, the Patriot and the, the mm. diplomatic shock that happened because the villain was so evil and yes. also British. And the, the UK was like, what the fuck? We have our special relationship. You can't do this. So that was just a really interesting note um, from then for like external Hollywood history. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, great film. Great watch. It was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's I'd, I'd seen it a few times before and I watched it in anticipation, anticipation of this episode. And yeah, it's still delivered. And um, it still delivered, even though the fact that one of the supporting cast is Kevin Spacey. So um, yeah. shows how, how strong the actual film is, the fact that it doesn't really feel like too much of a distraction to see him on, on the screen. Um, I don't buy that. I think you, you you still watch the usual suspects and you're like, yeah, this is amazing. On the other yeah, I'm just like, <laughs> let, let's get more films made with this guy. That was, this was the first film I've watched with Kevin Spacey in it since all of that news came out yeah and it was a it was weird it was weird because when he came on screen i was like ew <laughs> <laughs> i don't like you and <laughs> it was a really interesting kind of experience but yeah it was still very watchable and enjoyable and and all of that kind of stuff yes. yeah it's, it's interesting like kevin spacey always plays sort of like sardonic characters who are like mm -hmm. a little bit dirty mm -hmm. in some ways this is strangely obviously he had this you know this terrible private life but it wasn't like he was playing a lot of like heroic characters uh it wasn't tom hanks yeah it just wasn't tom hanks oh, um i think that this movie is uh it's good for sort of showing the rampant uh corruption yeah absolutely. in the in the, uh, the lapd and it's also good for showing the the police officers themselves as 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 all like individuals. Mm -hmm. These guys are all like very different from each other. You know, Guy Pearce's character, uh, he he yeah. thinks about the greatness of his father mm -hmm. and his father's successful uh, police career, but his father did it a little bit differently from the way he does it. So um, he, but he wants to go really on the straight and narrow. You've got Russell Crowe's character, who who basically is really really pissed off about stuff from his past. Yeah. Like he's really pissed off about um, the, people the who abuse women. And, yeah. People who abuse women, and that his father actually killed his mother. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in a domestic uh, violence uh, incident, and yeah. in and he's the preamble to his character is actually coming and assaulting a guy who's who's doing a similar thing to, mm -hmm. to his wife. And, uh, but he's very attached to the idea of being a police officer and to the idea of, uh, 
camaraderie with the other police officers it sort of comes out naturally and he doesn't really want to frame or, or like rat out other people mm-hmm. while the 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 guy Pierce character is like a strict moralist it, he almost like has this like a uh, deontological morality which is all about rules mm-hmm. you know like super rules based and uh straight laced uh character and then you have the the kevin spacey character yeah who's like he's, he's sort much, of in between isn't he he's Does in between but he's also like much more like a for himself i think mm-hmm. i think the guy pierce character is just like a rule following guy he's very like he's a uh, yeah, I you know I, d- I don't really see a lot of nuance in that character. I think he's like, he's just like by the book, mm-hmm. um, a little bit like um, uh, Ethan Hawke's uh, character in yes. uh, Training Day. But the Kevin Spacey character is is he's much more like out for uh, himself. Out for himself. He's a, he's a utilitarian person. He just wants to get what he can. He he's very happy to work on the TV show that he does he obviously he has a sort of change of heart towards the end of the of the movie mm-hmm. and maybe maybe the movie is a you know in part of the criticism of the way he he approaches things uh, and i guess like in the end like the russell crowe characters are like much more naturalistic you know mm-hmm. much more human of the of the of the two really in yeah. my opinion but yeah it's a really good movie i've uh, it's, it's always been a, a really enjoyable movie um and uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's a great uh, LA movie. Yeah, and, and as we'll probably touch on uh, in other films, it's its depiction of the police very much isn't that there are a few bad apples here and there. There's an institutional um, sort of relationship to to the misdeeds that, that go on, and the, the actions um, made by uh, or done by multiple people. Um, right, the next film we have is a slightly um, different tone, although uh, another great film, and it's Boogie Nights, which is a 1997, another 1997 film, a comedy drama written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It's set in the Los Angeles uh, San Fernando Valley and focuses on a young nightclub dishwasher who becomes a popular star of pornographic films. Um, And the film chronologizes his his rise uh, in the golden age of uh, porn in the 1970s um, through to his fall and the excess of the 1980s. Um, the film features a truly uh, excellent ensemble cast, including Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, William H. Macy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Heather Graham, and was nominated for three Academy Awards. Um, Toby, why did you pick this film for Los Angeles on film? Well, actually, the reason I picked this movie is because the first two minutes of this movie are probably my favorite two minutes of any movie <laughs> like they start this movie with frames the boogie nights uh sign and um and it does the, the long take basically it, it takes the long take from the touch of evil which was a orson uh, wells movie uh which starts with a, a super long take and it and it puts on um the best of my love or um oh, I, what's the song what's the song um i know the one you mean yeah no no we, we have to get this okay you you ha- you <laughs> want specifics okay yes the best of my love yeah 
by you know it doesn't take much to make me happy and make it this yeah like i literally go on youtube like maybe every three weeks to watch <laughs> <the beginning. laughs> I fucking love the beginning of this movie. yes amazing it, it's very similar to the um the entrance scene they have at the club in goodfellas and uh, oh yes a- yes it's very yeah. because it introduces a lot of the characters through yes. that uh through that long uh long take yeah. and it's and uh, you know and 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 yeah at, at its at its most heady you have roller girl who's introduced here mm-hmm. and she rolls through the club with the camera behind her it is just magnificent it's it's a joy to watch and and um and and and, and to be honest this is a really good movie but that is the best part of this movie <laughs> it will always be the best part of this movie for me yeah but yeah i think i think that the the movie depicts a part of uh los angeles which is you know the san fernando valley parts um that that sort of that has an identity you know um the the eddie adams character who, who becomes dirk diggler he comes from a sort of suburban san fernando valley experience you know which uh, and it's the the suburbanization of america itself you know the people mm-hmm. leave the cities have they, have they left cities all around America in the 1950s and 60s, but the San Fernando Valley became this, this the suburbia of suburbia, sprawling with sort of middle class uh, Americans uh, living these lives. And, 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 and Eddie, you know, he Adams, he's a, you know, sort of he's part of that existence as, you know, sort of boring, but, you know, moderately comfortable experience. But he's a fucking dumb guy. And his mom <laughs> hates him. So like he's a dumb guy. He's not. I mean, God, God bless him. You know, God bless Mark Wahlberg. But he's a dumb guy. You know, and he doesn't. He's not. He's not good at school. He's not doing much uh, with himself. Um, but he, you know, he 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 does like to hang around uh, sort of LA-based, uh, San Fernando Valley-based clubs, and um, be you know be a busboy and and do things like that. And he meets the um, William H. Macy uh, character, and also the the head of this this porn uh, uh, company, uh, who uh, wants to bring him in because, like, he's a dumb guy, but he's like I don't I don't know what they all see in this guy because they 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 look at him from um across the room mm-hmm. and they so they see him and they say well you know this guy's a talented he's going to be so i guess he's dumb but he's he's attractive apparently and then um he, and then like people in this movie love to talk about this guy's dick right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um even the the producer of the the pornos uh, he he's at a pool party and and he's heard about this guy's dick, and 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 uh, Mark Wahlberg takes out his dick for him, and the producer literally looks at, looks at it like he just saw the Sistine Chapel. His eyes roll back into his head like, <laughs> oh my god! And so he's a really talented young up and coming porn star in this world that's been created. 
um, by these large changes in America. Like, you know, it was the Stanley versus Georgia case where a house was raided and they found some porn. But and then the person was supposed to be going to prison, but the Supreme Court uh, rejected this idea and and said that it was his constitutional right to keep this porn. And 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 the Nixon administration really went after um, the, this decision and really tried to clamp down on obscenity laws, but they couldn't. Uh, Deep Throat came out and. Uh, porn was protected, and 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 there was a real, there was a real like, in, and this is the same time as Roe versus Wade. There's a real upshot in the in the in the mid to late seventies of really progressive legislation that allows people basically to have access to, and um, sort of spread this 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 kind of content, and even you know Alan Dershowitz, who's 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 now infamous, but he was very very influential in 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 pushing this uh, on, on a legal level. So you have people coming out of the uh, San Fernando Valley experience, this, this sort of boring, um, you know, provisional experience, and they coming to Los Angeles or staying in San Fernando Valley, not quite making it in Hollywood. They're not, you know, they, they're busboys. They're, they you know, they're living this, these, lives that one might think in other films that they become Hollywood superstars, but they, they enter this world of pornography. And to be honest, like on, on the surface level, it's quite a glamorous world, but when you dig that down deep down into it, you have a lot of people with kind of, um, kind of tortured lives. Uh, Julianne Moore is a character in here who like see on the surface level, she enjoys you know, being a porn star and what what is offered to her in this world, you know, but she's been split from her son, who she really loves. And um, because her husband thinks that she has a sickness, you know, that that what she does professionally to make money, what she's successful at and validated by isn't a, a, a profession that's that's good enough. And is actually and should be shunned, and she should be, and and so she loses custody of her son. And then you have the um, Don Cheadle character, who he who sees himself as an actor, but aspires to be a guy who sells audio equipment, and he tries to get a loan, but he can't get a loan because the business says that what he does is wrong. And so he can't get alone. And then you have the roller girl character who, you know, she's smart and she wants to, to be in school and she wants to manage the life. You know, she, she doesn't necessarily hate what she does in terms of porn and the money she makes, but she's she's really looked down upon by guys in her school who just, you know, basically see her as like you know, like someone who's immoral and want to take advantage of her. And so, yeah, so you, you have these people coming out of the San, San Fernando Valley and in the San Fernando Valley, you know, really trying to make it in the world, but not trying to make it as becoming big stars. There, there's, a, there's a mixture of this because Dirk Diggle actually becomes a huge star, an actual celebrity, which, which can be achieved, but it's never going to be seen like becoming a Hollywood celebrity and so and it's always going to be seen as immoral by people and people are always going to shun you so you have people who you know 
are in this precarious situation, they have the possibility of fame, but they're always going to be looked down upon. And I think it's really it's a really great anthology of, of these characters and their lives by someone, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, who he's from the San Fernando Valley. Um, he, he was interested in, in pornography as a, as a young man. He was interested in film as well. And, 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 it, and it really pulls out from his experience. And I think his latest movie that he's, he's coming out with is also another movie from the San Fernando Valley. So, so yeah, yeah, I think it's a really great movie. I think it has the f- first best first two minutes of any movie ever. I, I, you know, I religiously go back and, and watch it. It is it, some really great music, some mm-hmm. really sugary mm-hmm. scenes in in pool houses of people enjoying um you know great music and their lives and their friends and the community that they're building you know even julianne moore and roller girl are, are kind of like a family you know she wants her to be actually her mother and i think it's a it's you know it's, there's some really beautiful beautiful scenes there but but it, but again it's a world where the the people look down upon and um a world where fame is possible, but it, it it's not necessarily, you know, so good for for the people in, in this movie. And I think I think it's a it's a great movie. Um, you know, it's it's been compared to Pulp Fiction because uh, the the directors are you know it's around the same age and the the movies come out ra- around the same time. And I th- I think it's up there in terms of uh, great movies from this new emerging crop of filmmakers from the from the from the nineteen nineties. I think. Yeah, I, I think um, I definitely think you can see some of Pulp Fiction in this with the sort of element of the sort of segmented stories and the little sort of side adventures that, that happen in the film. There's there's one at a um, sort of donut shop um, late on, which which has um, an impact on the Don Cheadle character. You have the Mark Wahlberg character and a couple of other associates going to this drug dealer's house, which is quite a wild ride. Um, and then you've got Goodfellas, which is um, yeah stamped all over the film. And I believe when they were actually making the film, uh, the director was I think watching it like once a week in order to try and just get that same sort of energy and that 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 the the the, the way um, Scorsese is able to bring the, the the story to life in his film. I think uh, Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to match it with uh, with Boogie Nights, and Paul Tom- Thomas Anderson is is someone who's done LA on film a lot. I mean he he's as you say, he's got, I think it's Licorice Pizza, which is coming out, um, which is a, another 70 set one. Um, he folds uh, Boogie Nights up with Magnolia, which is a, a, a an epic of, of, of a drama set in modern day um, Los Angeles. And it's obviously a, 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 an, an area which, you know, he feels comfortable talking about. And um, he, he's from Los Angeles. So it's, it's obviously talking, being able to film his home city and tell these stories is obviously important, important to him. Um, Vaughn, you um, you watched Boogie Nights ahead of this. What what did you think? I fucking love this movie. <laughs> it's fantastic, and I I'm sure I've heard of it before, but I'd never seen it before. Mm-hmm. And I was just really really happy that Toby picked this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing this into my life. It was fantastic. Um, they referenced Star Wars in it. And John mm-hmm. C. Riley says that people tell him he looks like Han Solo, yes. which I laughed out loud at. Like, that's a great line. Um, when he's, like, trying to show off, like, bravado and everything. Yeah, Mark, Mark Wahlberg's Walmart. reaction to that is like, what? Really? Yeah, oh, really? Really? Do they? <laughs> it's great. Um, I love that. I I love how dumb 
Mark Wahlberg's character is in yes. this. Like, he's really dumb. Um, I-, I love the argument he gets in with his mom, where he's like, I'm not a failure. I'm going to make something of my life. Yeah. Oh, his his mom is abusive as fuck. Oh, his mom is awful. And like, he still deserves nice things, even though he's dumb. But I love that he's obsessed with karate. I love that. (laughs) He's really, really obsessed with karate on his walls. Um, He's like Asian bedspreads. Yes. Well, well, in his bedroom at home when he's like, Oh yeah. When he's young. Yeah. It's like covered with like these sexy cut women and in like bikinis and everything. And Mm. then there's just like a very heartfelt, like handmade collage of um bruce lee and there's a serpico poster and i'm like this is adorable (laughs) this is such a like perfectly cast like i absolutely believed that he was 17 in this Mm -hmm. film um and i believe he was 26 when it was yeah filmed so yeah it was it was so good so enjoyable and what what Um, did you think of the the final reveal at the end um, <laughs> I was very happy um, because I was curious from the start if they were going to go there. Um, the uh, in my notes, just like every few minutes or every few lines, there it just says bad sex, bad sex, bad sex constantly because all of the sex <laughs> in this film looks terrible. Every every single shot of sex looks absolutely awful. The porn is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, they have some like montages of, of some of the non-sex um, action that they have in, in these films, um, including Mark Wahlberg's take on being an action star. And... Oh my god, so good! Yes. <laughs> uh, and then one other thing that I would want to say is that um, oh, Alfred Molina in this is also fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, really great. But in terms of like history, um, it goes from 77 through the 80s, mm-hmm. and you get a real sense of the shift in culture between the 70s and the 80s. Um, They make fun of Don Cheadle's uh, outfits throughout the film because he starts as like a cowboy and then dresses like um, Lionel Richie at one point, I think. Yeah, and then does he not also have like the Egyptian style as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that like is a very pointed look, culture is changing, but you, you get a real sense throughout it as their hairstyles change and like their costumes change, their attitudes, their mm-hmm. their jargon changes. And I think that's extremely well done. Um, there are also like rises in homophobia throughout the film, mm. which is very interesting going into the eighties. Um, yeah. There's a lot of drugs in the film. And another thing is that early on um, the producer is talking to Burt Reynolds and Burt Reynolds is like, get fucked. Like videotapes are not yeah. going to replace film reel. <laughs> and that is fascinating because they, they follow that through the rest of the film of how the porn industry is changing. And Burt Reynolds is trying all of these sorts of like gimmicks to stay on top of the field. And he just mm-hmm. can't because he, he has a specific way. He wants to make porn where people watch for the story. Like you finish watching the film even after you come. And that's mm. a, it's such a fascinating look into a different kind of film history. Um, I loved it. I loved this movie so much. Yeah, and so. it does uh, really function as, as, as film history because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there's movies like um, Deep Throat and uh, the early 
Alice in Wonderland porno, but both of them were really attempting to be stories, to function as stories mm -hmm. in themselves. And the art form was largely attempting some sort of fusion between sex itself and narrative and to be successful in that way. And Burt Reynolds really comes out, you know, at, you know, at the beginning of the of the the Dirk Diggler sort of arc, he's watching uh, movies that, that Diggler is making and he's like, this is the best work I've ever done. You know, like he's, yes. he thinks of himself as an auteur, you know? Yeah. That, that's, and, I mean, he's searching for a legacy. Isn't yeah. He's, yeah. He's searching yeah. For, a, for, 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 for a legacy. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's funny because you know, the, the, the medium acts for a purpose, the outcome, which is basically to make you come. Right. But, but um, there's, uh, there's, the, there's that uh, sort of annoying jock character who's basically an, a harassing roller girl. And he says to Burt Reynolds that your films aren't as good, you know, anymore. And he and Burt Reynolds attacks him because of yes. that, because he really, really cares about what he's doing, you know. Absolutely. Which no, is I, I, absolutely. which, which, which is not something that's so obvious, but was actually a a, a, a moment in the history where where the, these movies were considered to be chic. They were considered to be. Uh, a form of uh, or attempting to be a form of, of high culture, um, the greatness, the stories that, they, yeah, there was, it was a real thing that happens in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the early 1970s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I watched this film. Uh, I'd seen it a couple of times before, but I watched it again ahead of this episode. And I think what really struck me was how much of a family the, the core characters are. And yeah. you've, you've got the relationship such as the, the Julianne Moore relationship with the Heather Graham character, and at one point they're ba they're basically getting high, um, and sort of trying to <laughs> adopt one another, and uh, because of, of the, the the loss and pain they have in their own separate lives, and it's both, it, it you know it, it's just really sad. As, as a bit of humor in there as well, but um, I, I think that's the kind of the one thing that unites unites the film and unites its characters. It's the fact that they're all looking for something and the, mm -hmm. the sort of a family um, atmosphere that's created amongst the, the core uh, characters, I think, is actually rather sweet. And um, I think yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson does a great job of sort of juxtapositioning the, the, the what could be lurid details in maybe the hands of someone else with the actual core uh, characters of the film. And I think for the most part, Paul Thomas and like the way he directs it and the way he's written it, he actually really likes his characters. And even though Mark Wahlberg's character is an idiot, he's an idiot who starts off with you know a really good heart and someone who actually cares. And his downfall is kind of the 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 sort of um, the center point of the story. And you know you see Don Cheadle and you know his 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 search for for kind of legitimacy first as an actor and then as a as a salesman. And also just how funny the film is. I forgot just how funny it is. Like there's a yeah. scene where John Don Cheadle is trying to sell um, like the bait, like a sound system and talking about like the, the amazing bass that this has. But then rather than putting on some sort of like funk or soul record, he puts on this twee country music that has no bass at all. <laughs> and the, the look on the, the guy's face when he, he's tried to sort of... What kind of brother are you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's just got a great cast as well. So, I mean... Even just smaller characters like like the um, the producer played by Philip Baker Hall, who kind of comes to them and, and says, mm. you know, vid videotape is, is the way forward. And um, if if um, you're interested in some of Paul, Tom Paul Thomas Anderson's early work, 
Philip Baker Hall actually plays the main character in Hard Eight, which was the first film that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson did, and is, is really good. And then you've got characters like Robert Downey Sr. Um, so played, they, did, I'm sorry, did he say that, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to win an Oscar here. Yeah. Uh, some some people might call me a pervert. Phil Baker Hall is fantastic in this. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got like uh, actual porn stars such as Nina Hartley, who's who's in it as um as the the wife of the assistant director and uh, yeah he uh, <laughs> he has a william h macy's character has a, a tough time in this film shall we say um yes so um really good film uh, we should probably move on but uh, one last little bit of information von only had time to watch either she had time to watch one more film um ahead of this <laughs> Uh, podcast and she was like right i got choice between these two which i go for so i kind of laid that out and she's like right you 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 <laughs> you had me at porn industry so <laughs> well done thank you, simon it was that a good is, thank you it was <laughs> that is good... what i said <laughs> it was a good choice though because it's a film you now love so i'm i'm very yeah i am really happy that i watched it very it's glad so good so good Right. Um, uh, another LA story, um, and this is Toby's Choice, is our next film, which is Straight Outta Compton, which is a 2015 biograph- biographical drama directed by F. Gary Gray, depicting the rise and fall of the 1980s gangster rap group NWA and its members Easy e Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, MC Ren and DJ Yella. It was nominated for one Academy Award and made over $200 million at the box office. Um, Toby, can you tell us why you picked this film? Well, I picked this film because the great Pimp C once said that, you know, it started in Los- in New York, but then rap went to, to California and they did it a little bit better, to be honest. And, 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 um, and Pimp C's words, I think, were true because this is the place where this sort of thing becomes national, you know. And again... Um, a lot of the characters in this story, Easy E, Dre, um, even Suge Knight, uh, MC Red, all these characters are legends, and they're they're people that you know that you know about just from being a person in the in the noughties and in the in the tens. Like this is this is is this history in, in many ways, but it's. It's sort of folk history for, for, for people in, in contemporary time. And I think the reason I picked this movie uh, also is this movie is a great movie. Right? It's a movie mm. that does not deal with, it's not conventional in terms of the scenes. Like the, the, the opening scene, Easy e goes to a stash house, right? Which he's planning to rob with three people there. Like, like he's Omar from The Wire, which is crazy. Right. And, and he's, and he's, he's, he's nasty to, towards them. And, and the scene's going to go in one way. And you think you know where the scene is going. And then the police show up. Okay. The police are here. The police have tanks. Yeah. They have tanks. And there's a, there's a young lady. You think, well, you know, she probably, she's probably the least likely to get hurt in the situation. And the, and the tank rams into the house and the yeah. young lady gets flung. Against and it's girl. like, what? This is crazy. Wild. I did not expect this from this from this film. And the and the movie, I think, it becomes more conventional through the story, but it goes on having really really great scenes. And this and 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 it's a really great time capsule of the 
early 90s uh, Los Angeles and, and the lives that these young people uh, leave. I think another great unexpected scene in the beginning, just at the beginning of this movie, Ice Cube is on a bus and, and some of the young people are throwing gang signs out of a guy they think is in a gang in a car. Hmm. And the guy comes with the shotgun. He, he knocks on the, on the bus door. He comes in with the gun and he's like, like, do you guys want to get killed by me? You guys need to be gang banging these books because if, mm. if not, I'm going to be the one who kills you. And it's just there's there's an expectation from from the movie that I think the, the, the movie is written so, so well. Obviously, these stories are actually coming from uh, Ice Cube and Dre and, and, and the, the world that we're learning about comes from them. But the stories are really great. And so the, the arc takes you from um, all these guys either being like gangsters or sort of, you know, sort of even just beating down guys who who want to achieve something with their music like Dre. His mom's really pissed off about him because he's spending too much time as a DJ or Ice Cube. He's in school. He's doing OK, but, you know, he wants to be a rapper. And all these guys come together in a time. In L.A. around the the early 90s period where, you know, things are becoming much more stark in terms of the ethnic and class divides in, in Los Angeles. You know, there's, there's always this thing that, you know, uh, young black kids in, in, in Compton, you know, live in, in California, live in LA, but they don't know that it's LA, you know, they, they don't know that, you know, you just go across a little bit and you're in, you know, the world of, um, Clint Eastwood and all of these stars, they're living a completely different reality, but the, the, op- the possibility of stardom is still there. And they, and these characters, MC ran, um, Dre, Easy E, they ride the wave and become huge stars. They emerge out of out of Compton at a time where people don't think actually that this rap music is gonna is gonna take off. Um, yeah. They they make all these great all this great music. They break conventions. They you know they 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 do things in ways no one no one's ever seen before, and they 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 make a lot of money. But then they then they start to have personality clashes. They're fissures. In, in, into these groups and they fit, and the thing about these fissures is that I knew before I watched this movie when I watched this movie in 2015 with my literally with my family <laughs> I watched this movie with but um, that uh, I knew that Easy e and Ice Cube have a problem and and then they they go off in different directions and then there starts to be a beef I knew that Dre and Suge um, become friends and they go off and, and do their own thing. I knew about all of these fissures and I knew about the, the issue with uh, Jerry Heller, who was the business manager. I knew about all these issues, but the way the movie depicts all these stories that I already knew about is interesting. It's fresh. The story is just, I mean, the stories are always great, you know, I, and um, you, you get a sense of these characters, you get a sense of the music, which is runs throughout this movie was joyous in many ways it's like boogie nights all of the all of the partying and and, and scenes with the with you know with women and and the drugs they're all sort of effervescent and joyous but you also get the story as well and and i think if you know if this wasn't a story that um 
that was a historical story and it was just the film that they made, I would think this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. But because um, these are stories that, you know, they live in their experience and I already had uh, some knowledge of the story itself. I think the movie does a really great job at making the stories seem fresh, seem original and, and, and um, overting uh, conventions in, in 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 many many different scenes. I think it's I, I think it's a really great movie. It's a really great movie for LA. Again, like Boogie Nights with the San, San Fernando Valley, going to Compton itself, it 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 it's it it shows you a different part of California, a different part of of living in California, which is different from you know like a noir or a movie about Hollywood. It's it's really about the people who live in California, their dreams, which is which is basically a weaved in and a part of California, you know, to be a huge porn star or, or to be a rapper, their dreams and the possibilities of their dreams. And, you know, the, the people who push back against the, those dreams, you know, but, but also showing you the authentic people that live in California. So I think it's another great movie for uh, the people in California and to, showing the, you know, the great diversity of California. Yeah. Um, I hadn't actually seen this film um, prior to this last week and I watched it with my wife and we both really enjoyed it. Um, I knew a bit more of the story than she did, although I didn't know the full details. And yeah, it was it was really engaging. I thought the story really kept moving and, and was able to... It actually told a, a larger story than I was expecting. I wasn't actually expecting it to go into the 90s and to see... see um, Tupac and uh, and characters like that who appear later on in the film. You've got um, little appearances of of the Snoop Dogg character. Um, I think what was especially the first half of the film, they really emphasised the police brutality side of it, and where um like a song like "Fuck the Police" came from. And you you see the police are constant constantly picking on them and um basically um, deciding that because these people are black, therefore they're in a gang, therefore they need to be taken down. And um, I thought you really, I think you get a much, if you kind of didn't know the history all that well, I think you, you would get a much better idea of what these people were having to deal with from the police in a, in a time prior to the Rodney King beatings. And in fact, the Rodney King beatings do actually appear in the film and the, the news footage is played and then, uh, it, it kind of is, is part of the story for a little bit and then eventually goes to the the, the scene uh, on the news where they, they basically say that all the police officers that were, were charged um, got away with it and uh, weren't sentenced. And um, yeah, as someone who knew a bit about the history but not the full thing, I found it a really engaging story and one that was a, kind of a bit more epic in scale than I was expecting. And um, I, I, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was really, really well done. And I wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was. So um, yeah, definitely credit to the, the filmmakers and everyone involved on that. And and, uh, and just one one last thing in, in terms of the the uh, violence uh, showed by the uh, the LAPD in in this movie. I think mm-hmm. California is the place where the Black Panthers are from, right? It's it's the place um, you know the post sixty four sixty five this you know this this black uh, rights movements very male in its in its top half you know and they were you know they were getting guns 
to show the police, you know, they had the right to carry and they would defend themselves. And there were changes, genuine changes that came out of administrations, especially in the 70s, that kind of subsided a lot of the energy of that movement. But then in the late 80s and the 90s, really very much in California, because, you know, you get the, the Rodney King beating and then the L.A., the LA riots then ensue afterwards. Again, it becomes a point of uh, clash in the culture to do with these specific issues by a completely different generation. And these people are 20 years removed from the Black, Black Panthers, who again came out of California. But again, you know, in many ways, like today with the Black Lives Matter and after the, the George Floyd incident, uh, a generation of young black people found that the the way they were being treated by the LAPD was unconscionable. Um, many people here who you know uh, the LAPD are profiling, they're not doing anything. Like Ice Cube, uh, you know, until he smashes all those records in the Priority Records <laughs> place, he's not he's not committing any crimes at all. You know, he's not close to any crimes at all. He's just a rapper who's who's going to school. But he's profiled as a gangbanger and treated like as if he had committed a crime, as if he was, you know, a, a bad person or, or something like that. And, um, you know, I think we've all actually experienced viscerally that kind of, of treatment by people who were, who were doing some of the most si- simple and dumb uh, profiling of, of people just because of the way that they look and their experiences and in that rage really comes out you know and it comes out in the at a show they do in Detroit where the police you know they preamble by saying well you can't say the, the fuck the police song uh, and and they're waiting in the background and, and and Ice Cube is like fuck this you know I'm, I'm going to say what I feel the, the music is authentic and an authentic representation of how I feel uh, about the world's different from the sugary pop or even the sugary rap that was before. And this is, this is authentic and I'm going to say how I feel and they do. And then the police really rush them. And then it, yeah, it's, it's, it's not just a movie about, you know, guys becoming rich, becoming famous with this music. It's a, it's a movie, as Simon says, with a really broad scope. Uh, and it has a lot of Easter eggs for people like Snoop and Park and all that stuff. But those, those Easter eggs don't take over the movie. It's, it's the, the emotional life and drama that ex- that is experienced um, by Ice Cube and Dre uh, uh, and Easy E, but cast across this wide, you know, um, panoramic view of, of LA at the time because these characters, you know, Ice Cube, Easy E, and Dre—they're they're legends. They're American legends. And there, you know, this easy even goes and sees um, George Hooper, Walker Bush in the White House. You know, it's they're, they're, they're great uh, legends and, um, you know, and an important point in, 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 in American history. And then again, it's, a, you know, it's an, another, another big and authentic story about uh, California. Yes, and nothing says American legend like George H. W. Bush. So, um... and Suge Knight is so fucking crazy. In this oh movie. yeah, look, if he hadn't been a character that I knew in real life, mm-hmm. and they had just made him up, I would be like, "Yo, this this guy, he's like Pesci." Like, yeah, he, he gets he, out of he, a car. Exa- that's exactly what someone. Is someone? What is 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 either they parked in his parking space? Yes, yeah. And he just mauls that person. He does, yeah. And, tell, and and then there is a scene that is so 
crazy. This is hench guy. It's big guy. And they have a dog mm. and, and they, 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 they use the dog to corral him. Yeah. While he's half naked under a desk pool table. Yeah. A pool table. And, and, and it's so terrifying. Yeah. It's just, it's hellish almost, you know, and he's so, so scared. In this movie. Yes, agreed. I, I was more scared of Suge Knight in this film than I have been in like 90% of like comic book films of, of the, of the bad guy. Like, like they, they do a fantastic. Didn't, didn't Suge drive over someone because he was pissed off? I, yeah, I, well, I think the, it was, that's, that's, the re- that's the most recent thing he went to. Prison. Yeah. So that's why he went to jail. In fact, it was around the production oh of this film. He actually like chased down two people and ran over one of them, I think, killing them. And then the other person, he like mangled their foot or something like that. And that's what he's in jail for. Um, so, yeah, he's a terrifying character. Good Lord. He's presented as such in the film. And I think the Joe Pesci character from Goodfellas is, is a fantastic um, example, uh, kind of um, uh, almost copy off that. I think that's a, a great callback, Toby. Right. Um, from, well, one sort of street level view of LA to another. Um, we're going to go and change pace a little bit now with uh, Vaughn's pick, which is Pretty Woman, which is a 1990 American uh, romantic comedy film directed by Guy Marshall um, and stars uh, Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. The story centers on a down in her luck uh, Hollywood sex worker um, and uh, her relationship with a wealthy businessman. Uh, the film grossed over $460 million at the box office and became an established rom-com classic um, kind of instantly. It also made uh, Julia Roberts um, one of the biggest stars in the world. And for some reason, this film was not nominated for a single Oscar, which mm-hmm. feels just, well, we know why, but it feels wrong. Uh, Vaughn, why did you pick this film? This is my favorite film, like of all time. Really? Uh-huh. I love this movie. Really <laughs> I like how you ask that. Like, I don't say it once a week in our group chat. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty Woman is my favorite film of all time. And there's so many angles to view it with. Like, um, It also makes the Mitt Romney love so much more apparent now. It <laughs> <laughs> makes sense, right? Your attachment sense. to yeah. him is basically yeah. sort of a displacement from... Um, the the Edward Lewis character played by Richard Gere. Yeah. Oh, that actually makes a lot more sense now. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean, he talks about like destroying businesses, so businesses, so he can kind of sell them off for profit. Uh, and uh, yeah, pretty, that's a uh, mid move. Isn't that's it? very much a mid move. He does the bare minimum, doesn't he? Well, no, he does more than the bare minimum. But plus, he's Richard Gere. Plus, he's Richard Gere. Okay, so yeah, it's my favorite movie. It's just so good. There are so many angles I could take this from. I've written about it for like my academic research. Like, it's just I love this movie. Um, why I chose it for this one is because there's a a character who's like an omniscient, like an unspoken omniscient narrator. Um there's a character who just kind of walks through the streets around Vivian's apartment and where she hangs out and, and works um, in Hollywood. And he, he says at the very end of the film and at the beginning of the film, quote, welcome to Hollywood. What's your dream? Everyone, everybody comes here. This is Hollywood land of dreams. Some dreams come true. Some don't, but keep on dreaming. This is Hollywood always time to dream so keep on dreaming 
And that I think really captures a lot of what we've been saying about Hollywood and kind of popular imaginings of Hollywood is that it's the place that people go to with a dream. In the US, you either go to LA or New York, depending on what your dream is, as I think Toby said earlier. Um, and with with what you're saying about Gatsby too, actually, Toby, they're like having the moment um, is definitely part of this film that they're, that Julia Roberts is like waiting for something, but she doesn't really know what. She followed an ex-boyfriend to Hollywood. Um, he was abusive and she left him. And she's just this like very wholesome and very smart and very funny uh, woman who Richard Gere falls in love with. Um, but he doesn't know that he fell in love with her. It's so sweet. It's so sweet. Mm. Um, she's like just very innocently like watching I Love Lucy episodes and laughing and having a floor picnic with like things that she scrounged out of the mini bar. And he's just watching her laugh at this comedy. Um, and afterwards she gives him a blowjob and then he takes a shower and she has fallen asleep. And at that point she takes off this like very short blonde wig that she was wearing and reveals her long, gorgeous curls, her Julia Roberts hair. Um, and she stays as that character for the rest of the film. So that's, that's where the character arc really starts is their first night together um, in this pointed way. And you can, you can see it throughout the film uh, where she is talking about this fairy tale that she had when she was a kid, when she would be locked in the, the attic that, that, the, that she was a princess locked away and a knight in shining armor would come save her uh, and they'd live happily ever after together. So it kind of goes through that. There's, there's a montage in it. Um, they go to San Francisco for the opera on uh, Richard Gere's private jet. And you, you see a lot of LA and California in it. They're on Rodeo Drive. You see wealth inequality. You see um, race relations in a longer cut of the film that isn't in like there's a, there's a deleted scene that isn't in most cuts of the film, but um, it's, it's where Richard Gere's character really kind of shuts down their pimp, uh, Carlos, and threatens him with his driver who pulls a gun on him. It's a great scene. I didn't give it justice there, but it's a great scene. Um, so it goes through a lot of things. It's also peak 80s in perception. Like it has a lot of vibes from Wall Street, which we've covered before. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of capitalism and war profiteering that he wants to build Navy ships. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much in this film and it's so good. It literally opens with a magician saying no matter what they say it's all about money and he's doing <laughs> a magic trick to make a coin bigger like how can you how can you not fucking love that and want to talk about this film all the time that is such a great opening line no matter what they say it's all about money fantastic because that's what hollywood is 
Like, oh, God, so good. Also makes so much sense about your viewpoint on the world as well when you consider that line. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, which is, love capitalism. Love which it. Is why you went into becoming an historian, I think, was for the money. Uh-huh. Yeah, for the money, because it's all about the money. Making um, the money bigger. Making the money bigger. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy this film. It's, I think, the only one on the list I've actually seen in a cinema. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, it's a really fine film. Uh, I watched it again, and it's a really easy watch. Julia Roberts is, I mean, she's obviously beautiful, but she's glowing in this film. Yeah, um, she's so gorgeous. And you can see why she became a huge star after this, um, because uh, the <laughs> we're in love with her, but the screen is in love with her. Just the way she's shot and the way she she mm-hmm. shines throughout is um, kind of mes- mesmeric at times. And it's it's still funny as well. You know, it's it's still it's you know it's it, in part a kind of sort of a satire on on some of the kind of the eighties tropes that we see. Um, but it is uh, a funny and fun film alongside that, and uh, yes, it's um, it's it yeah, it it's a good depiction of LA as well. I think with the, the different aspects of the mm-hmm. kind of the, the grimier um, um, streets um, that she's walking on at the start to the um, well, the plush and um, over decorated um. Uh, hotels and um, um shops that she goes into later on it's uh, yeah it's it's a very good la film but also just a, a very enjoyable film and uh, one that um one that's always worth re-watching and um mm-hmm. actually fits in quite nicely with your next pick as well um which is another film about uh well to some degree or another about money um so the next next film is Clueless, which is a 1995 coming-of-age uh, teen comedy film uh, written and directed by Amy Hecklin and is uh, kind of a, a modern retelling of the Jane Austen classic Emma, um, which swaps out England for Beverly Hills. And as we said, uh, Beverly Hills has some <laughs> strong ties to, to, to pretty women as well. Um, the film's uh, Clueless stars uh, Alicia Silverstone, Stacey Dash and Brittany Murphy and Paul Rudd as well and um, just like Pretty Women it somehow won no Academy Awards which again feels like an oversight um, mm-hmm. despite the fact that Clues came out the same year as Braveheart and Clues is definitely a better film um, mm-hmm. Vaughn, why did you pick Clueless other than the fact it's really good um, the main reason is mm-hmm. because it has the line, it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. Yes. That's one of my favorite lines from cinema. It's a perfect line. Um, it's it's a good depiction of LA, I think, um, especially with the wealth inequality mm-hmm. that we have mentioned, because you don't really see anyone from a lower class in the film but you're aware that these people are very high class relative to other people, yes. which I think is an interesting kind of dynamic to never show the opposite of the yeah. opposite end of that spectrum. And even those who are in that, sorry, um, they mm-hmm. might be working class. They're in the world of, of the rich. So you've got like the, yeah. um, the driving instructor, for instance, you know, he, he's in, in the world of these, these sort of spoiled kids who are learning how to drive or the, the school teachers who are uh, working amongst the 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 rich kids, um, yeah, you, you don't, kind of don't fall back into the 
the non-rich world. Sorry, Von, on you go. Yeah. So like at one point they go to the valley for a party um, and they have like all of the hilarious tropes and jokes of Californians constantly talking about those 37 freeways I mentioned earlier, where it's like, well, why wouldn't you take the 10? Like, it's, yes. that's a great little bit. Um, but they, they go to the valley and even there, the only people that speak are the people who go to this very wealthy school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that really interesting that you, you never engage with characters who aren't within the bubble, as you said, of these like rich, rich kids in, um, where are they, Beverly Hills? Yes, Beverly Hills, I believe. Yeah, so um, you get the character of Ty, who is played by Brittany Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a bit lower class, like working class than than the other kind of characters. And Elton at one point says, like, she and I don't make sense together because mm-hmm. she's a lower class. Like, do you know who my father is? I should be with you, Cher. And yeah. he sexually assaults her there, which is solid. Um and then he kicks her, or she gets out of his car and he drives away and leaves her in the middle of Sun Valley. Um, and she gets held up at gunpoint. So that's the only character that we see in the entire film who is outside of this bubble is the person holding her up. And I think that's really interesting commentary on LA. Yeah. Um, and a very specific kind of perception of LA that they wanted to get across in this film. Have you seen, have you read Emma or have you seen any other adaptions of Emma? Um, I don't think so, no. Because this is the first one I came across. So this came out in 95 and so by the time it sort of came to TV and was available on VHS and I had an older sister, you know, um, this was the first depiction I'd ever seen of Emma. The only other one I've seen is the film Emma from a couple of years ago, which I've seen multiple times now. Both me and my wife absolutely love it. And it's uh, it's an interesting viewpoint um, seeing those two films um, mm. because obviously you know they're, they're both based on the classic uh, novel and uh, just seeing the different interpretations. But Clueless still really holds up as both a t- retelling of Emma and also as a film in its own right. And actually, just thinking about it now, um, the, the the main character played by Alicia Silverstone does actually remind me somewhat of uh, is it Elle from uh, Legally Blonde. Um, yeah. This, you know, she she is she has uh, intelligence. Although I think Elle was probably smarter. Um, but they also had mm. a, a good natured, um, sense about them. And even though they 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 came from, um, from wealth, um, they you know as you say they, it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> I, I think that there was a common sort of good core to to the nature of those characters, which is um which is lovely to see. Yeah. I think um, there's just a couple other things that I want to say about yeah, it. They they really hit home, like the freeway aspect of LA. There's a scene where Dion <laughs> like can't get off of the freeway, so or she like takes an exit onto her or something, um, mm-hmm. and it they're just screaming for a good like two minutes, and I forgot how long that scene is, but it's <laughs> like it was very very funny watching it back now in preparation for this and thinking about like the freeways and everything they really hit that point home um also there's no fucking way that any of these people are 15 (laughs) (laughs) yes 
I don't think I've ever really noticed that before that they say that they are 15 years old, but there's no way. Like, no, that's hilarious. Like, I would have just bought that they were like 17, 18, but no, no, selling them as 15, I see them as 26 now. Like, that's yeah. hilarious. I don't also, know why Paul they need Rudd, mm. Oh, sorry, go on. I was gonna say, Paul Rudd is fantastic, I love him a lot in everything he does but he's just so good in this film Mm -hmm. um he he says at one point he's growing a goatee while he's reading Nietzsche I I don't know I just I love that picture of him um I think it's great um and last thing her dad looks vaguely like Richard Nixon (laughs) he does he does look like Richard Nixon which is why he's the good guy for film Mm. Um, yeah I, I really enjoy this movie I don't have that much add beyond what you guys have said. I, I would say that when I originally watched this movie, I saw it as, you know, like someone who's supposed to see it as in like, this was like a really cool, fun, very mm-hmm. like hip, like Stacy Dash in this movie, you know, the hats and stuff, very, <laughs> hip, you know, the, you know, wealthy movie about uh, beautiful people going to a, you know, a, a school, and um, and I I saw it sort of in that way. Many many ways, like Ferris Bueller, like um, mm-hmm. our original viewing of Ferris Bueller. You know, coming out of um, the the Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller, uh, other movies like um, uh, Fast Times at Richmond High. These sort of like sugary suburban LA movies like that. And uh, I really enjoyed it on that level. I enjoyed the 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 social politics you know her not mm-hmm. being able to hang around with with certain people or the, the date certain people like not not maliciously but with a sort of almost like um like reptilian view of social yeah. class within the school where, where all the kids are like wealthy kids you know they're all well off kids from suburb but there's these hierarchies even between that and them you know, almost biological difference. Yeah, like she's I mean, <laughs> yeah. almost biological. Like she's not a bad person, but uh, but it was like a, a guy who like went up to her, um, you know, like during like a montage bit, and she like she's like she like flings him away. <laughs> like, a bad person. She just she just knows and she and she understands certain things, um, in the school, which is you know obviously in many ways an extreme version of 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 these things. But yeah, I think it's a. I think it's a really great and uh, interesting movie. I, I really, I, yeah, I, I very much like the the Paul Rod uh, ca- character, who's who's much mm-hmm. more. He's well, he's sort of well centered. He's more, he's more of a person really than uh, the the main character. But yeah, yeah, and and again, it's 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 although it's quite it's much more ubiquitous um, because of the suburban aspects of it. But again, it's like it's 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 Beverly Hills. It's a different part of. Los Angeles, a different part of Los Angeles uh, experience, and, and yeah, and again, it's a movie. I, I, when I, you know, I, when I first saw it, and even uh, again when I've re-seen it, it's it's a movie I really love. And I think of the, the the class aspects that you guys have uh, elucidated on are, mm-hmm. are are really interesting. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really got me thinking actually about this 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 film. Yeah, I I have oh. one other thing to add. Go for it, Val. real quickly. Um, I always forget that Christian is a character in this film until I watch it again. Yes. And Christian is the the ring-a-ding kid who yes. thinks that he's like Frank Sinatra. And <laughs> that's 
the, his entire character is so funny. Like, he's the most obnoxious person you will have ever met if mm-hmm. you ever had the pleasure. And when Cher and Christian are having a, a little date, she says, like, all he wanted to do was watch Sporadicus. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then she learns that he is gay. And that's so funny. <laughs> that, yes. I know. All of that is so funny. Bless. Um, um, there's there's a couple of uses of language in this film that did make me kind of squirm a little bit. These yeah. R, R word once and um, some of the description that they use towards uh, insinuating that he's gay was, again, a little bit... Um, probably wouldn't be doing that now but yes overall mm-hmm. really good film and if you enjoy the film i would uh, highly recommend the 2020 film of emma uh starring anya taylor joy because that's a really good one as well and uh, before i move on to the my my final two picks to, to close out here uh, bonus question for you von on clueless and pretty women do you have a favorite outfit from each film um yeah actually um, <laughs> the the red dress that julia roberts wears to yes the opera or the black dress that she wears to the first dinner with mm. the Morrises. Okay. Um, it's a really hard tie between the two of us. I also love her polo dress, which I've been looking for that dress for years and I can't find one. The brown and so white I, spotted one. The brown and white spotted one. If any of our listeners know where to get that, send me a message on Twitter. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite one from Clueless? Do you think you can maybe pull off some of the hats that they have in that film? From Clueless. I... Okay, so I wear hats very well, okay? Uh-huh. That's a bit of a humble brag there. Um, <laughs> I think I could pull off some of the hats. Not all of them, but some of them. I'm trying to think clueless. Yellow, uh, yellow sort of tartan suit kind of thing? Yeah, I that is such an iconic outfit. I really yes. love that one. Um, yeah, yes. I'd probably go with that one. Go with that one. Okay, great um sort of change of pace for my final two which um i kind of chose because i wanted to have a theme around um sort of crime films and when i specifically chose these two films um or the three films in general along with ellie confidential i was specifically trying to do something a bit different than what we did with new york on film where i tried to pick different genres and to pick different things whereas this i was trying to hone in on 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 a sort of genre or genre-ish um set of films so my, my next uh, film that i'm picking is training day which is a 2001 crime thriller um directed by antoine fuqua and written by david Ayer. it stars denzel washington and ethan hawk uh, as two lapd narcotic narcotics officers and the story takes place over a 24 hour period denzel washington won the best actor academy award for this film um it's yeah th- th- there's a lot to say about this film the, the reason I, I i chose it was several reasons one i think it's a good travelogue of los angeles um so you have some of the more dangerous um parts of the city that are, are depicted and um you see that the characters driving in there and the, the relationship between what the, the sort of even the, the police and where they're allowed to go in their quote-unquote city um you've got the, the post rodney king um, nature of it, the fact that um, this is a, a film which directly uh, mentions uh, Rodney King in in the film and is also clearly post post Rodney King in, in the way it kind of deals with some of the p- police brutality uh, nature of it, um, and o- also in relation to that, there's been talk of a a, a prequel which would actually um, I think tell the story of the Denzel Washington character. I think 
around the time of the, the Rodney King uh, beating. Um, police corruption is a, a big part of this film and, and definitely not doing things by the book. And again, that, that is an interesting comparison to LA Confidential where we have police corruption and it's um, institutional nature, which again comes through in Training Day, where it's not just one police officer doing one bad thing. There, there is a a network of this, and uh, the Ethan Hawke character, he kind of bumps up against that on his first day, and it's not what he was expecting. Uh, and th- then the, the use of hip-hop and um, both the music and, and the actors, so you've got Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Macy Gray, how that's fitted into the film, I think, is is interesting because you've got a kind of classic Hollywood that we were talking about where um, crime and um, sort of media came, came together in something like Ella Confidential or um, something like Sunset Boulevard, where it's, you know, sort of black and white cinema or classic cinema mixed up with crime. Whereas by the time we get to the 2000s, hip hop seems to be the, the more... Um, connect the genre within the city um, of, of, of media representation and, and this is a really good example with those actors that I named and with the music that they play in the film and um, some of the neighborhoods that they have in Training Day can echo some of the neighborhoods that they, they visit in LA Confidential when they go and um, talk to um, some informants there and the Denzel Washington character was actually inspired by a real life dirty cop uh, Rafael Perez who um, was yeah kind of charged with um, I, th- I can't remember the exact crimes, but he he got done for a, a lot of of, of different um, <laughs> crimes while while being a police officer, and uh, I think he was also um, accused of being in uh, in one of the gangs in the Bloods, and of actually murdering notorious B.I.G. at the behest of Suge Knight, who we've we've touched upon um, with Extraer um, Compton, so. There's a lot to unpack with this film, both with the the, the story itself and the, the, what's depicted, and the the sort of naive young uh, cop uh, being taken on the ride with Denzel Washington and his um, um, criminal dealings, and then sort of the outside of it to do with some of the inspirations behind it. I think it's a it's it's a film that has again another dark viewpoint on the LAPD and is. Um, Again, I think kind of striking that this is a post Rodney King LA viewpoint of the um, of the LA Police Department. Um, Vaughn, I think you this was your first time watching the film um, ahead of of this podcast. What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, it was. Um, <clears throat> it was a bit like cop porn, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, it's a fucking wild ride. Yes, like. The entire time, it's just wild. From the very beginning, when he forces him to smoke weed, and then it's actually laced with PCP, and he's like, "Drink a beer, you'll feel feel better." And it's like, "What is happening right now?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it it's bizarre. Um, and I really couldn't tell for a long time in the film whether they were going to excuse his behavior or not. Um, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm happy they didn't excuse his behavior because genuinely wild. I think I kind of like clued in maybe after he um, 
tries to frame Ethan Hawke's character for murder. And he's like, you'll get a medal of honor. Don't worry. And I'm like, <laughs> right, what? <laughs> like, um, yeah, it was it was really before. But it's interesting, as you said, to like put um, Russell Crowe's character in that, kills someone and then shoots towards the door um, to make it look like the person mm-hmm. shot at him first and he didn't just murder this person. And Denzel Washington does the exact same thing in yes. Training Day. These films are four years apart and Denzel Washington has many other crimes, but not anything that much worse than what Russell Crowe's character was doing in L.A. Confidential, except possibly with the money that he steals a lot more money. And that's an interesting thing that Russell Crowe is branded a hero mm-hmm. in L.A. Confidential and Denzel Washington is um, definitely not in training day so like is that just because of the money aspect or is it because this is a completely different film that like there's different context that one was set in 1953 um training day is modern day i don't know but they're interesting to watch together yeah they absolutely are and i I think the the denzel washington character is i think self-centered in a way that the Russell Crowe character isn't and out for himself Mm. in a way that the Russell Crowe character isn't but if you then step back and look at some of the the actions that they do without that context and without that sort of personal lens then you're right what about the crimes that the Russell Crowe character committed that we were kind of quote-unquote okay with um, because it was a good thing uh, or the right thing or bringing about justice um, and I, th- I think that that is a, a a question which is worth asking when we talk about um, police corruption. In fact, w- one of the things they have in LA Confidential is the conversation that the police captain has, where he's like, "Would would you you know plant drugs on someone who you know to be guilty, or would you you know kill someone who you know is guilty but his lawyer will get him off?" And the Ed Exley character is saying, "No, I just won't do that." And um, there is a sort of breakdown at the very end of the film to do with his character and whether or not um, he he will do those things. And there's obviously no equivocation about Denzel Washington um, and what he will do. And then there's the question of of the Ethan Hawke character, who is um, so straight-laced as well and who has to to deal with... um, just as you say he, he's almost like a viewer in this he just can't believe that he's been asked to do these things and that this is his first mm-hmm. day and in fact one of the interesting motifs about the film is this idea about they keep referring it back to um someone reading a police report and the a new uh, la police department officer was killed today uh he's serving in line of duty and he was survived by his wife and infant daughter and so so the the sort of how the media would would read that story is presented multiple times mm-hmm. in this film, and then that's obviously a, a key point now, like confidential, to do with how they how, how the media reports or how the the LA Police Department give the story to to the media to report around whether or not you know someone was killed in a certain way or whether or not they were killed you know 
doing good or, or doing bad and uh, we have that in LA Confidential um, where at the end after the shootout the captain is actually I think presented in the newspaper as sort of he died in a uh, as a hero in in the uh, fighting the the, the gangs um, mm-hmm. but in reality he he was the he was the bad guy he was the, the drug kingpin um, Toby I don't know if you have any any thoughts on training day no I think this is a I think it's a really really great movie uh, just like Vaughn says, like it's a wild ride. He's literally in the car, and he hands him uh, yeah. <laughs> drugs, and he laces it with PCP. So yeah, it's a it's a fucking it's a fucking wild ride from from the get go, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I think what's particularly interesting about this movie is like is it Alonzo Harris's character is like he's a bad person. Mm-hmm. Like the Alonzo Harris character is like. I'm gonna do this fucked up thing. 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 I'm gonna get away with all of it. Like he's, you know, um, I think one of the crucial scenes in the in the movie is um, when they apprehend that I think the guy was a former police officer or something. Um, yeah. Uh, so do you mean the the one they end up killing? Or... Yeah, the one they end up killing. That was actually like a drug dealer who oh. she's like struck a deal with them. Yeah, yeah, he's a drug dealer. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the, but the the lines are so gray. Yes, that you know he he, he seems like he's he's one of one of them, and yeah. then Lonzo Harris uh, is like, I'm going. I want you to. I want the Ethan Hawke character to shoot him. Yes, like you want. I want him to shoot him. And uh, the guy's laughing because he doesn't think it's going to happen. And um, obviously, Ethan Hawke isn't going to shoot him. And then Alonzo Harris does it yes. himself. And it gets into and it gets into a really big, uh, a really uh, basically a really big clash between Alonzo Harris's guys and, and Ethan Hawke ab- about this. And the, and and uh, Alonzo actually actually to to frame the situation, he actually shoots one of his guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's wearing a bulletproof vest, and then, and then, but he actually, sh- but he shoots him once, and the bulletproof vest catches, and he shoots him again, and then it actually hurts him, yeah. and he's dying in the scene. <laughs> Which and and but it, again, it shows um, that the, you know the the institutional corruption of the LAPD, uh, very much reminiscent of Serpico. Mm. Actually, yes. you know, you've got this mm. this guy who doesn't want to. Um, involve himself at all in the in the corruption, uh, but yeah, but I guess uh, uh, as opposed to uh, Pacino's character, who was, Pacino's character was much more of an individual. I feel like Ethan Hawke has like a bunch of things that he won't do, but he's he's more of a sort of he's more of a sheepish sort of blank yeah. slate character. He's not as 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 sure of himself. He grows more sure um as the movie progresses uh into its 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 final scene but i i would say that the interesting thing about this movie is is how fucked up alonzo harris is right (laughs) because like you know i'm a big fan of the tv show the shield and the tv show the shield has two things like big mackie is a he's good at his job and that's something that is reiterated throughout the shield he's good at his job he gets stuff done he, he puts the numbers down but he skims off the top a little bit. And if if there's an investigative officer, police officer that's getting close, he'll stage a murder of that guy, right? And so, and then he robs a, a, a train that's held by, I think it's the Ukrainian mafia. They like they they steal 
like millions from them. And so like, but he functions as someone who's good at his job. And Alonzo Harris is, is similar in, in, in many ways. Like he's with a bunch of like top police officers, like in a narcotics mm-hmm. department, all, all these like old white guys, obviously that, you know, the, they're senior in their roles and he's talking to them and they're, you know, they're good friends and they know that he has the problem with the Russians. Right. And they want to see him sort that out. And, and, it, and he, he's obviously someone who's incredibly valuable for them, but throughout the movie, he's doing like really fucked up things and you don't know why he's a good police officer really, which is I, I maybe one of my criticisms of the, of the movie. Like he's, 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 um, he's drawn too extreme in some ways um but apart from that i i mean it's it's a it's a movie with great dialogue there's a there's also in that scene that you know the one of the senior officers is talking about a guy who had like i think he was like like jam in his, in his ass or something and he was oh yeah the peanut butter in the peanut ass. Butter's ass yeah mm-hmm. um and he, and he was saying and and he got away with it got got away with it in that situation right and like there's there's that scene there's this the scene with Dre, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, you know that that uh, Ethan Hawke might manage to get out of. The, the, there's also the scene with the the gangbangers, the the Latin gangbangers, yeah. where, where where Ethan Hawke managed to get out of the situation because he saved the cousin of one of the gangbangers, and he was almost murdered um, in the in the bathroom. There's a lot of these really really great scenes. The final scene, obviously. The speech that um, Denzel obviously he he ends up winning an Oscar mm-hmm. um, for this movie probably should have won an Oscar for Glory, but uh, I um, think he did for Glory, but he didn't for Malcolm X. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, he did, he didn't for Malcolm X, but he won the supporting for for Glory, didn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah, uh, he, he, he uh, really should have uh, won an Oscar before this. Uh, uh, Jada Kiss always has that line, you know, like why did Denzel have to be crooked before they? <laughs> and um but yeah it was a, it's a really great it's a really great scene he's obviously he's obviously saying what the 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 black people in that community really believe like he's saying i'm i'm the police right you guys yeah really, whatever i do i'm gonna paint it in a particular way and you there's nothing you guys can do and and they start walking off quite disgruntledly because they know the, the futility of that situation and for me that's that's really the end of this movie like what what happens mm-hmm. with um the russians yes is something that can happen because the you know the russians have a particular way of doing things like even if you're a top narcotics guy they're, they're still going to take you out but the those the socioeconomic reality of those people and their interactions with the police is that they, they really can't do nothing they're helpless they can mm-hmm. get a whole group of people to surround uh around him and and you know try to say that they're going to kill him but they can't do that yeah you know like he's it's it's a sacred thing almost that 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 the the lapd have created about killing a police officer and getting into situations like like that so which makes it really really hard for them you you almost need a force like the the russian mafia who are above the, the laws that you know the laws of mortal people in, mm-hmm. in Los Angeles to re- to really uh, sort out this, this situation yeah so I think I think it's a great movie it's a great movie of like as as Vaughn said that that, that preamble in cards a movie of high adrenaline it moves really quickly that the, the the lines are really great the things that they do like you know shooting a guy in, in the in in a bulletproof vest 
to, to frame a crime. That's, it's amazing. Like there's so many amazing scenes. My one criticism of the movie is I, I wish uh, Alonzo Harris had been drawn a little bit more lightly mm. and you could have seen different sides of him. So like, you know, like it, he's like, he is a bad person and uh, he's corrupt and, you know, part of the, the, you know, the, the conspiracy and social decay and part of the injustice in, in Los Angeles, most definitely, but he's just a co- kind of a cartoon villain. But, um, and it's not, it's not really Denzel's fault. It's much more the writing. And I think mm-hmm. if, if, the, if the writing had made him a little bit more like uh, Vic Mackey, I, th- I think uh, it would have been even more powerful than it was. Yeah, I think that's maybe um, a case of if this had maybe been a TV series, we may have explored it a bit more and maybe um, understood the character and maybe had more complicated feelings. But as you say, it's very... He is almost cartoonish with some of his actions, and there's th- that great line when he's he's ranting, saying, "I run shit here, you just live here," which is um, kind of a, a viewpoint that he has on on how, um, as an LAPD officer, he is above the law. Um, right. I, from oh, sorry, go on, on you go. Just a quick point. I think actually the reason I was unsure as to whether they were going to have sympathy for him and then kind of like let him get away with all of these things was because he like Denzel Washington was very convincing to me mm-hmm. that he is a good cop. Like I just took him at his word that he was like, I've collared oh, so yeah. many felons and like, I'm cleaning up these streets. Yeah. You just have to get a little dirty to do that. And for a while in the film, it looks like he is a good cop because he's willing to do things that, that he needs to, like you have to have a little push and, a, and pull in order to get the real like crime syndicates. And I believed that, like I thought it was very convincing for mm-hmm. a long way into the film until it was clear he was just completely corrupt and doing things selfishly. So like, I, a- yeah, I think it was, I, th- I think it was convincing for me. That, that's interesting. I guess from a, my point of view, I've seen the film a few times and I saw it when I was quite young. So when I think of it, I guess I almost fast forward in my head. Mm. What, what he does later on and, and and the kind of vindication of how terrible he is and of how he's kind of planned this day ahead in order in order to to frame the rookie cop yeah. and all, all this kind of thing so i guess when i i'm now watching the the earlier scenes i guess yeah, yeah there's I that scene where ethan was like oh you you thought about this early in the day it's like i planned this a week ago my guy yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that- um yeah. So yeah, maybe I don't have uh, coming in with fresh eyes. It's interesting to hear. hear I think for me, that. like, is is a it's a very it's a very short scene. It's it's about it's after the rape, right, or the attempted rape, and um, Denzel points the two guns at the the crackheads yeah. who was, and mm. and and for me in that scene, he humanizes that guy because he 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 like he berates yeah. him he berates him in a way that is cruel and humiliating. Uh, and um and yeah i think i think for me like you know if 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 he was drawn a little light, lighter he would have handled that situation a little bit better but yeah. he does he doesn't and obviously like it, i mean I, I i might have done that to that person because you know he he, he obviously attempted to uh, rape that yo but but it's still this is this is an overt cruelty to um denzel's uh, character in this in this movie at least for me the, um, that's the 
the sense I, I get from and even like the the police the senior police officers he's with like all those guys seem quite ghoulish to me as well yes um yeah yeah but then, i think it's that's not... why it was so believable for me sorry simon because oh, no, it's like they were like all of the top official kind of people he was like these are the people who will get you off when you have to do the the hard stuff so i it was like because it was the first time i was seeing it i was like is this just the portrayal of lapd that you you have to go into a bit of crime to capture the the larger ones i guess and it was a really interesting reveal that like um they are all just corrupt yeah <laughs> like that is the view of lapd that they're putting here but we're gonna do something about it now is like the last like two minutes of the film so yeah, yeah i thought it was I, it was a, it was a very interesting watch yes and um ties us up teases up nicely for for my next film which mm-hmm. is nightcrawler which is a <clears throat> 2014 neo-noir psychological thriller Written and directed by Dan Gilroy, it stars Jake Gyllenhaal as a um, well, a petty uh, petty criminal who, um, yeah, he, he ends up um, kind of recording um, violent um, events late at night in Los Angeles and sells the footage to, to local television news stations. And uh, the film also stars uh, Rennie Russo, uh, Riz Ahmed, and Bill Paxton. And I, I chose this for a number of reasons. One, I wanted a a, a more modern uh, viewpoint of LA, um, which I think this does, and I think it ties nicely in uh, with the the other films uh, with regards to just sort of depicting Los Angeles. Um, it also ties in very nicely with the the relationship between crime and media, which we see um, we see in the other films, and is brought to light um, as kind of the center point in, in this film. And um, the the modern take on a sort of symbiotic relationship between unethical journalism and consumer demand, which you can see in LA Confidential, and um, you you are very much presented with in in this in this film, which is um, it's it's a bit of a wild ride. It's um, got a fantastic lean performance by Jake Gyllenhaal as as uh, Louis Bloom, who is in a way, kind of like a, a modern-day Travis Bickle-type character. Um, he talks very much about oh. um, being able to um, kind of communicate or being able to sort of learn things because he reads the internet a lot. But he he, he has almost no social skills. And everything he, he does, it is almost like a, an alien who's, who's trying to attempt these things for the first time. And he is so void of, of genuine human character or human emotion that he can easily switch from being pleasant to being the, the worst person you've ever met in an instance and it, it, it's all very believable and he is driven to have a career and he, he's always talking in this weird uh career progression type way of, of he's almost narrating himself the, the way he, he talks to people and his viewpoints on the world and it that in itself is quite an interesting look at at, at kind of where, where we are with um, people looking for work and uh, trying to gain employment and the, the kind of jargon that kind of naturally comes along with that, you know, with self-motivated people and, um, you know, him making himself president and CEO of, of this two-man operation and 
offering like vice chairmanship or vice presidency to to the Riz Ahmed character who he brings along because he needs a an assistant to help him film these these incidents that happen. Um, it's maybe a bit more neutral on the sort of police side of things, which it is is not really the center of the film. It's very much on on the media depiction of these crimes. And we, we have the, the René Rousseau character who really cares about creating a narrative around what's happening. And she really cares about if a crime happens in a nice neighborhood, she can then sell that as like the creeping horror of the world around them. And there's a, an incident that happens um, to do with a horrific murder or murders in this uh, nice neighborhood in this lovely house. And um, the Lewis Bloom character gets this amazing footage. And there's several things which are key about this, which I really think taps into to why this film works. One, you have the, the, the Rennie Rousseau character is during, during the actual broadcast of this, she's telling in the ears of, of the broadcasters exactly what to say and exactly the, the tone to hit and to reinforce certain things. You've then got the fact that uh, Lewis Bloom wants credit for this, but he doesn't just want money, which he gets as well, but he also wants uh, his new, his news um, services to be kind of credited and talked about as a professional news gathering service. And later on, when it's revealed that maybe this isn't so much a home invasion in a nice neighborhood, it might actually be drug related. The Renny Russell character doesn't care. You know, she's the producer who wants to tell a narrative story and that doesn't fall into her story. And I think it does make you question um how we interpret media and news in general, but specifically around where there's crime and where there's um, sort of anything where we're, we're viewing incidents through the lens that the media are telling us. And I, I, th- I think it's, it's a crazy ride to watch a lot of the time when you see some of the things that happen and especially the sort of final quarter of the film um, to do with shootouts and um, car chases. And I think it's it's uh, an excellent viewpoint of, of a modern Los Angeles, which is not at all like the sort of glamorous 1950s, you know, classic Hollywood. And e- even in something like LA Confidential, where we were, we were talking about how there's the kind of grime underneath the the surface of of like the, the movie stars. Well, here there isn't really much of a surface. In fact, what's been sh- sh- brought to the surface is in fact the the this underbelly, this this horrible uh, sort of media created narrative around the crimes. And I, I think it's a fascinating watch. And I think it's a film that's aged well as well. I think with the how we're trying to internalize what media is. I, th- I think this is a film that continues to stand out and I, I, I think it's a really uncomfortable watch and I think for, for that reason I think it's it's a really good film. Um, Vaughn, you were um, um, taken aback by some of the stuff that happens in the film, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I messaged you I think and said, Simon that was fucking mental <laughs> and I was a bit concerned about you because you picked this film. <laughs> I, like you said it's a little uncomfortable of a watch. No, like the entire time I was like grimacing as I was watching it. Like, what is happening? Why is Jake Gyllenhaal doing this? <laughs> um, it was perfectly acted though. He is exceptional in this film. Yes. But yeah, it's 
fucking bananas. Like he's Renee Russo's character is from Philly. And I was like, yes, girl, love that for you. And then he's like me tooing her. And I was yes. like, oh God. Like, and he's just doing it with this like cold smile. Oh. And just like, of course you're gonna help me because I know your entire history because uh like your employment history that you've only been at each station for two years because you can't keep a job and the only reason you're keeping your job right now is because of me and he learned all of that on the internet in like what is this 2014 or something yeah um and that's really that's extremely uncomfortable that um but all of that information is out there and even more so now so mm-hmm. it's even more uncomfortable um I think yeah as you said showing it from like a like thinking about it rather from a journalism and and media standpoint everything you said is spot on it's completely curated um there's some great quotes from Renee Russo's character where she says like they want graphics like really graphic images of wealthy white people or very impoverished minorities but nothing really in between because that's what she can sell on her news channel um, and she wants it grim and she wants the people to acknowledge like, like to to have these images and be terrified of their neighborhoods. Um, there's one character who pushes back against her and um, Jake Gyllenhaal a, a few times throughout the film. And he's like, you're going to show that that dead body on the morning news while people are having breakfast. And she's like, yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. It's just cold and calculating. It's just, it's grim, really grim. Um, It is a great film. It's really great, but it is difficult to watch. Also, it's difficult to watch because Jake Gyllenhaal has the worst man bun I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) I was upset about the man bun. A perfect addition to the character to have hair that terrible. Yeah. Um, And and it's an, I think, if it's not the final shot, it's one of the final shots of the film. Is of the Jake Joe John Hall character, um, kind of basically sort of succeeding with his career and getting on with mm. with filming these horrible things. And then in the background of it, you can actually see the Hollywood sign. Yeah, and it's kind of clear about how kind of close to ground level this is. I mean, this is as close as is underground level. Um, and in the far off distance, you have the shine of of Hollywood, and it is. A city which will gladly take in both the you know it'll produce a la la land but then once you come home from the cinema you can stick on the news and watch a home invasion and be terrified so um mm-hmm. yeah I, I think it, it works really well as uh as a commentary on 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 media and crime there's and... one other thing with riz ahmed's character that i want to say is that like jake gyllenhaal totally takes advantage of him and mm. Riz Ahmed, his character, uh, is his name Rich or Rick? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Riz Ahmed, so he needs a job very badly. And Jake, sell yourself. And he's like, I took three bucks. And he asks how much the pay is. And Jake Gyllenhaal's like, it's an internship. And he's like, "Mm, man, I got to get paid something. So he offers him $30 cash per day, which is $3.75 an hour for an eight-hour day and like that exploitation is horrific and then he offers him a promotion later on he's like how much do you want to make and Riz Mm -hmm. Ahmed like doesn't really understand yeah the leverage like 
Yeah. Yeah. The leverage that he really has here. And he says $75 and he like starts to say more than that, but he, he caps it at 75, which is nine thirty-eight an hour. Mm-hmm. And like, I just was so sad for him, but also I think that's very reflective of a lot of Southern California uh, exploitation of labor, which is something mm-hmm. we haven't talked about at all yet, but maybe we'll talk about that in our California series. Yeah. Um, that was an interesting kind of perspective in the film also. Sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that. That was something that kind of struck me was the, the employment side of this and this sort of gig culture um, mm. nature of employment and I think the the film through the Rizami character really does highlight um highlight that nature and it's you know people will be employed by by s- someone not as terrifying as the Jake Gyllenhaal character in this but who has similar tendencies towards employment and towards talking about it's not unusual for people who, you know, go on my internships to then take full-time employment, which is obviously nonsense because he's had this business like a few weeks and this is the first person he's hiring. Um, but it's that kind of just nonsense talk of, of trying to make it sound grander than it is when in fact all you're doing is exploiting someone for free labor. Um, yes, I thought that played into the film very well. Um, right. Do we have any final thoughts on this, or shall we? Shall we wrap? Yeah, up? yeah. I absolutely oh. have um, some <laughs> final thoughts on this, and I'll keep it brief. But yeah. I would say that this movie reminds me a lot of Wolf of Wall Street in some ways. Interesting. I would say that you know, like the Wall Street movie of the nineties, eighties, with Bod Fox and all that. You know, it was a it was a tale, but it it, it had this sort of the glamour of the the city and and it you know there's the, the talking heads and all that it's, it's it's there's the glamour there but wolf of wall street is com- is is it but it's completely drained of that it's like fellini's satiricon it's just decadence and um drugs but but also no one seems to be happy or and everyone is just pure ambition and it's extreme and this movie is like that as well i think the Jake Gyllenhaal's character is a co- kind of pure form of narcissism mm. that succeeds in late stage capitalism. He succeeds, you know, he's, he works very hard. He'll do anything. He'll change the whole scenes, all, the things that happen in, 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 at crimes. He'll change all of that. You know, he'll, he'll move bodies. He'll do anything, anything that he needs to do to, to, um, become successful to earn fame, and and the things he's saying are just catchphrases from self improvement books, you know. Yes. Constantly through this movie, um, and it's and it's gone from a stage where you know uh, self improvement is something that can help you to improve your your life is is you know the human potential movement all the nineteen seventies to that you know if you don't take this attitude, you will end up immiserated or even dead. And uh, Riz Ahmed's um, character in this movie, I mean, he's just, he's a really, really sad figure, you know? I think one, one of the saddest things is that, you know, there's a crash with um, one of the other uh, TV news people, and uh, Riz Ahmed's character is like, well, don't film him. He's one of us. And there's yeah. that bright little spark and it's it's it flickers it's fleeting of 
community and a sense of identity and a sense of closeness with that with other people and jake gyllenhaal just goes over there and puts the camera in his face yes. you know and and gives him that stare like you're done you know because all and 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 he jake gyllenhaal you know i think this is the real combination of travis bickle and rupert pumpkin from king mm-hmm. of comedy you know like um, the joker tried it you know it, it, it messed around a little bit this is the real because Travis Bickle wasn't a character who wasn't competent. You, I think I always got a sense, you know, because he kills all those people at the end of the movie. You always got a sense that Travis Bickle was kind of a competent person as a taxi driver and probably competent in the war. But Rupert Pumpkin isn't a competent guy. Like he, he wants to be, a, he wants to be in films. Uh, he wants to be a star, but he's not funny, right? Yes. And this, and this sort of ties the two together. Like Jake Gyllenhaal is like a guy who wants to go to Wall Street and make all of this money with all these uh, self-improvement and, um, you know, trans- trans- uh, magical volunteerism catchphrases that he has for himself, you know. But he's also a guy who's very competent at this. He's good at it and he'll do anything, absolutely anything. This is like, this is the Hollywood version of Satericon, you know, Fellini Satericon. This is, this is the, this is Los Angeles after the fall, after, before Christ almost, or, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it's, it's completely hedonistic. It's completely narcissistic. Um, you know, the, he, he, he me too's that, um, that yeah. news, uh, news, uh, producer. And, but she, but what she doesn't do, is she doesn't say, oh, fuck you, I'm not going to do this. She's convinced by him into a corner where she's forced because of her, her work. And she's not, and it's not like, you know, oh, she's got the worst show. She's a, she's like a, a producer in her, you know, late forties or fifties. She, she, she must've done reasonably well for herself, but she's taken in by this scenario to the point where she will take in the, the 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 videos that he has even though he's forced her to become his partner yep. that's insane and she never she never th- thinks through that even though she's quite you know elusive and evasive in that conversation that they're having but she doesn't and and again, as you guys have both said, uh, especially what Warren said about curation, this is you know, it's reality doesn't matter here. This is uh, you know, in, in Wall Street, where you know whether the loans are, are credible, the mortgage loans are credible, that doesn't matter here. Actually, what happens to people in their lives doesn't matter. The the now you can fraudulently create scenes. And it doesn't matter what the scenes are about. They have to fit a, a central narrative so that the algorithms, uh, so they can match the algorithms, so they can be statistically accurate and they can bring people money. And that's it. That's it. Yeah. It's, it's, it, you know, the, the, the charm of LA is finished. The, 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 the love of, of filming, the love of the city, it, it's all, all of it is gone. All of it is drained. As opposed to, um, financial crisis movie yeah. you know it touches on the, the difficulties that people have in terms of attaining well, uh, jobs it touches on the the the, 
that people no longer have a you know a trust in the media anymore it touches on the culture of of of, of narcissism that that, that that we are experiencing and, and i think i think it's i think it's one of the best movies of the 2010s i think it's a great movie um i, I it, it's um good that simon picked it but also one 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 thing you have to know about simon Vaughan is that he picked <laughs> this movie and he did his dissertation on taxi driving because simon is not a good mm. person he's not like he's not a good person that's he, true he's not a good person he's a terrible terrible person yeah I, I simon, like simon is absolute fucking scum so i'd like to just defend myself and state for the record that it is true i am indeed not a good person um <laughs> both toby and vaughn are absolutely correct in that and um it's fair i mean you know what can you say they they have painted me the correct color in their um viewpoint there um Okay, so now that we've discussed uh, Jake Gyllenhaal basically just doing a, a bio- biography of my of my previous life when I worked in LA, um, <laughs> uh, we should probably move on to um, kind of just very, very briefly before we move on to our thoughts on the film series in general. Um, was there any other films that you kind of uh, immediately wanted to add in uh, my, my my immediate thoughts I, I really wanted to get Terminator 2 in there because I think it's it's really good and Toby and I have both said maybe, maybe the best film I've made and um, I, I would have liked to have a Shane Black film in there and uh, just because mm. he, he's done so many LA films so something like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or The Nice Guys it uh, would have been really nice to have in there and as I mentioned at the top a Tarantino film would have been nice to have in there as well um, but it just kind of didn't play out that way. Um, you guys have any uh, very quick thoughts on any films you would have liked to add in there? Uh, probably, probably would have liked to add in La La Land or Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so movies that were more sort of joyous uh, depictions of, yeah. of of LA. Probably genres like LA um, Lynch movies like Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have been a really interesting. Uh, movie to have in there or like have you said pulp fiction you know I, I i thought a long time should i say should we should we have pulp fiction mm-hmm. but I, I again again i remembered as you said you know um once upon a time in hollywood that we we had we'd done it, mm-hmm. that would have been a great movie for this uh series uh, as, as well yeah and i mean with with los angeles it's, it's you know it's it's los angeles right it's yeah it's a, it's the place where movies are made so Yep. So there's, so, there's so many options, but I, I think, yeah, I think uh, panoramically we picked a lot of really good movies. Um, I think my favorite part of doing this uh, this particular podcast is that Los Angeles does have this ubiquity, you know, because so many movies come come out of it. But you know, you're able to pick a movie about you know communities in Beverly Hills. They pick a movie about um, San Fernando Valley. You're able to pick a movie about Compton and stuff. So yeah, I think it, I think it really went well. Vaughn, hmm. any any other films you would have liked to have mentioned in here? Um, I was also thinking the other guy. Uh, no, the nice guys. The nice um, guy. Yeah, that's a great movie and very, mm-hmm. very good depiction of LA. Um, probably other noirs, but I'm happy with Sunset Boulevard. Um, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Oh. But I. Like you, Simon, I went. I tried to go with a theme for mine, so I went with female-led films um, because LA has a lot of those, surprisingly, mm-hmm. uh, as compared to other cities that we've looked at. So I wanted to really get that perspective in. Um, 
which Sunset Boulevard isn't necessarily female led, but she totally steals the show. So it is. Mm. Yes, um, that's fair. Um, but yeah, Who Framed Roger Rabbit would be my my kind of number one. But I'm also disappointed that we weren't able to find a Dan Aykroyd film to to add in here. Oh yeah, me too. I was really upset about that actually. Because he's sort of become the patron saint of, of American film. Um, yeah. Which leads us nicely into our thoughts on the American film series. So um, this came about a few months ago. Um, I can't, can't remember now, but we, we'd been discussing various ways of being able to tell more sort of state-based or city-based stories. And we, we talked about different ways we could do it. And we, we may indeed in the future talk about um, other cities and states outside of film representation or maybe including it but in a, in a different way and but we, we were kind of certain that it would be really cool to kind of go on a, a journey and talk about different cities or states and what film representation meant to them and what Hollywood and um, maybe independent cinema has done to to capture um, to capture those cities throughout the last you know 70 years or so um, I think for myself just kicking this off um, I think I, I really enjoyed this series not only because it's allowed me just to watch films which I'm very, always happy to do but because it's allowed me to talk about films which is something in itself mm. you know just being able to sit down and have a two-hour conversation with a couple of friends um, and talk about cinema and talk about different representation and then learn about the history um, both with Vaughn's wonderful introduction at the start, but then just the conversation. So we, we kind of have off the back of that and talk about how, how these films play into it and the, the, the different representations that, that we get. And so being able to to learn about the history a bit more and, you know, dig into, you know, the New, New York mayoral race in the, in the late 80s and how that sort of ties into, you know, a Spike Lee film or, you know, the, 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 the water wars of, of 20s California or, you know, whatever it is. Um, for for me, just being able to to talk about this in a you know American film to these these five cities, we could have, and we probably will in the future talk about other cities and regions, and we'll maybe touch on that a little bit later as to um what ones we'll do next if we we do indeed do them. But just for the five cities we've done, I think I, I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed t- talking about the different cities and talking about what it means to actually present cities on film and what that actually means, not just for the the particular stories themselves, but the, the wider catalogue and the wider representation of that city. Because something like LA and New York, you know, th- those, those cities are always going to have films made about them. Whereas maybe Philadelphia has, you know, has, has fewer films. And so when it is represented, when it is represented on screen, it kind of makes a bigger impact. I don't know if there's an equivalent for New York and LA on film like there is for Rocky, which has just sort of defined, you know, Philly on film for good or worse kind of since it came out. Um, but with LA and New York, there are just so many stories to tell and there always has been since, since cinema began that maybe it doesn't quite have that defining one film the way something like um, a, a Rocky does for Philadelphia. Um, Toby, what are your thoughts on on our series, and uh, have you enjoyed listening to to our, our ramblings for the past uh, however many cumulative hours we've done it for? No, I think I think it's been a really great uh, series to do. I think it's yeah, it's been a really stretching 
exercise really being able to link a lot of these films trying to find connecting themes and a connecting identity of a you know of a whole city and of a whole culture i think it's yeah it's been a been a really interesting um exercise i think like with new york i think i i brought a lot of um of of my own interest and my own background into mm -hmm. that episode you know because because i you know i already knew about um john lindsay and nelson rockefeller and even like the the, the battles between giuliani and david dinkins and it allowed me a, a real skeleton from from which to really focus in on these movies a lot of these movies which i love this is about like 10 other new york movies i could have you know talked about for, for that for that uh podcast but you know like when we were doing philly i i, I basically knew nothing you know i just i just seen rocky um yeah to be a, a little bit different for for boston but still you know with with boston i'd seen all these boston movies but i wasn't completely sure about the boston identity um about boston institutions about boston history i knew nothing about boston history uh but you know i read up on it and it, it was really interesting and i and i found that i you know we, we could knit together a, a, a story across different themes um really pick out a, a shared identity a shared experience with the stories that that, that displayed and, and really find out you know about, about about the city and and you know how the city is viewed and 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 how the people there viewed view the city through through its uh cinema which is i thought was a really really great experience and, and opportunity and and uh, yeah, and I thought it's it's also, I think a lot with a lot of the the shows that we do generally, um, I think there's less of a of a potential for uh, opinion interpretation of things. Mm -hmm. You know, like I can go across uh, Paris is Burning and and Taxi Driver and um, Breakfast and Tiffany's and re and really find out you know what I think about New York and what I think about what these films mean. Uh, for for New York and 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 similarly with you know something like uh like like China, Chinatown uh you know connecting it to LA Confidential or connecting it to Training Day or or, or, or connecting uh, Night Nightcrawler to to um, Sunset Boulevard to to Boogie Nights or you know across the the you can yeah you can really it's it's I think it's a more creative exercise than the things that we've we've done and i think um film criticism tends to be more creative it tends to be more personal you know there are there are one or two or three different angles to a particular historical particular historical analysis and they can be built up and they can have um in very individual aspects to them but i think um with with this with the movie series it, it really allows you to sort of to take what you think and what your experiences are and then try to like try to look at the material and then try to see like what do i really think about new york on film like what do i really think about los angeles you know on on film what do i really think about uh chicago on film like what do i think you know like what what do i bring and what what how do i feel about these movies and what do, what what do i think about the the people and and the and the way they're the, the their visual culture yeah yeah i think yeah i think it's for me i think it's been very interesting to do it and i think it's been a more creative exercise than uh, what we usually uh, do on this podcast which is which has been nice and and in some ways has been freeing so yeah i think i think it's been been great 
Uh, Vaughn, any thoughts? Yeah, um, I agree with a lot of what you both said, um, especially like about it being a bit more of a creative kind of exercise and, and drawing links between things that you wouldn't necessarily think about um, in other contexts. Um, for me personally, it's been really interesting because I have a personal relationship with some of these cities um, or a professional kind of relationship with LA where I know a very specific history about it. Um, and I got to expand on that, as we said earlier. And writing the histories has been a, a really cool kind of exercise of discipline and figuring out what, what is essential to talk about um, to lay a groundwork for our discussions. So that's been a cool exercise too. And one of my reasons for, for joining this podcast when Toby asked me um, if, if I would, was that I would get to study things that I can't justify studying in the rest of my time um, because of other work that I have to do. So this was kind of like a helpful excuse to get to study things after, my, after the post-war period and early Cold War and get to really look at the 90s and get to look at other things. And this whole series, I've, I had only seen probably like 10 of the, what, what did we do? Like um, 36 films, I think we've done. Uh, and I had probably only seen like, like a very small handful of them. So I've expanded so much of my film cultural knowledge across the, the latter decades of the 20th century. Um, so thank you guys for excellent suggestions. And yeah, on a kind of like film criticism note, and film history, I think it was a really, really good exercise for um, getting a different version of history and a different version of how a city wants to be perceived um, or agrees with being perceived. The, there are so many rounds throughout like, Throughout all of Hollywood history, there, there are different censorship boards and different um, like producing boards and everything that will check, like check you if you're not presenting something well enough. So I think we can be confident with a lot of these very major films that we've looked at that people who are familiar with the places would have signed off on some of the things mm. um, and presentations within them. And that's that's an interesting glimpse into how people want to portray and how a city wants to be perceived um, in mainstream media. And final thing I'm gonna say, uh, and then we can wrap it up. In my research, um, I focus a lot on obviously media representations uh, in more innocent media, specifically for me, that alters how you think and how you view things. and you're not really expecting to come away from like clueless with a, a thought about socioeconomics in Beverly Hills, but you do because it's in there. Like you, you recall the plot and then you have an association with the socioeconomics of Beverly Hills. And I think it, this has been so interesting for kind of tapping into the, some of those lesser acknowledged 
kind of subversive things that we wouldn't necessarily highlight if we're just telling someone about the film, but looking at it specifically as how it represents the people and the place and the geography and the, the everything of a city has really let us, I think, examine films in a, in a very different way than I normally would have just watching them. So I loved it. Fantastic. Loved the series. Yeah, it's been really good fun. And um, we will be doing other um, episodes and other series um, around sort of media representation. Um, we may, well, we are likely to be doing a California series at some point next year. Otherwise, Toby will kill us. Um, we will probably be coming back to American film um, once we take a break and kind of do other things. And that could include Texas, it could include the Deep South, Florida, the American North, it could include road trips. Um, we, we've kind of got some avenues to go down. Um, and I think when we return to this, I think it'll be with anticipation because we've really enjoyed these these five episodes and we'll put these five episodes together in a playlist on Spotify. I think we've already got the first four. And um, yeah, you can um, pour over all the films that we, we've talked about. And um, yes, hopefully you've taken something from this too, dear listener. And um, if you've not seen some of the films we've talked about, um, I think all the films we've talked about throughout the, the various episodes have had merit and are, are worth um, either re-watching or discovering for the first time. And uh, kind of final thought is, um, yeah, um, I'm really glad we did this series because um, we have, we spent a lot of time um, with the election talking about Trump and talking about, hmm. you know, insurrections and, uh, and things like that to actually to kind of go so hardcore on the politics side of things and then only you know a short while later then kind of turn the ship around and, and talk about film and talk, talk about film history and city history and american history has been a, a real highlight so um yes I, I very much enjoyed it and we will we would be doing more episodes again on american film at some point next year um, well, Toby, we've got another three-hour epic in the bag, so you've got both LA and um, New York now covered in three-hour epics of the show. So I hope um, hope that pleases you, pleases you to some degree. Um, is there anything else we want to add, um, or shall we just call it a day there at our grand three hours? Okay, that, that, I'm good. I think we're good. Okay, um, right from from Toby, from Vaughn, from. Um, Dan Aykroyd and from myself Simon uh, thank you very much for listening and we will have another episode for you in the near future take care goodbye bye bye